0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I had the opportunity to host this podcast, and I'm going to do this podcast ad-free because uh, it's an opportunity for us that we get probably once in a lifetime to interview two special mission unit guys that are buddies of mine. Uh, Chris Van Zandt, we had that podcast probably 10, 15 episodes ago, and it was a super impactful podcast talking about his life his career in special operations, and his transition into civilian life. Um, Finally got the opportunity to interview Lee Busby, um, a career uh, unit member, spent 15 years in a special missions unit at U.S. Army Special Operations Command. And you get to learn about his journey through his life um, in special operations and then post-military in his transition into civilian life, but also his new career at Tier Tactical, And I'll just say this podcast is sponsored by TierTactical.com. It's T-Y-R-Tactical.com. And you guys could use Philcraft 1-5, I'm sorry, Philcraft 1-word, and that will save you 15% off on checkout at TierTactical.com. i super humbled to be part of this podcast and have you guys be the other uh, ear in the room to hear this amazing story of Lee Busby. Here we go chris and lee thank you for coming on the podcast man yeah thanks for having us
1: hey appreciate it glad to be
0: back yeah it was a you know i talked to well if for people for some kind of context um chris van zant was on the podcast on the phil kraus survival side I, I haven't decided i actually might put this on the phil kraus side because it's just a lot more people exposure wise and then I'll, I'll do some i'll figure something out but if you're listening to this podcast Chris Van Zant's on it. If you haven't heard his podcast, just reference back about 10 podcasts ago where Chris was on, um, had to do some convincing uh, with Chris to get Lee on board uh, to do a podcast.
2: Yeah. Um, Chris's podcast, uh, I mean, we've known each other for a long time. So when I listened to that, very parallel life. Right, I mean, our ages, the time we got to the unit, whatnot. It's uh, it was it was real, like yeah, you know.
0: Did you did you ever listen to podcasts before listening to that podcast? No, and you've never done a podcast. This is my I'm I'm a virgin. Wow, I get to take your virginity. This is crazy. Well, Chris isn't a virgin, so we're tag teaming you on this.
2: Oh shit! But I'm very inexperienced.
1: Yeah, he was very. I
0: held him. I, I held his hand you through did, the process. You
1: did. You were very gentle. I was. I was.
0: Um, oh no, I'm really scared. Yeah, this is this is really cool because, you know, for me in. A, I've done this for four years, and I've done a lot of different backgrounds, military law enforcement, scientists, et cetera. But I always find unique about this is when you podcast somebody and you hear yourself talk like later on, it's hard to even remember what you said. But when you listen to it in retrospect, it's kind of weird because you forgot because we, we flow very easily when we communicate because we just talk. Yeah. But when you go back and then you reference that and you listen to it, it, it has a super impactful um, uh, in a positive way on your psyche. Like it's super beneficial for you. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like uh, the, the example would maybe be hygiene, right, where you accumulate all this plaque. And then when you talk about it, it kind of relieves you. But when you listen to it, it's another step in the process. It's like, man, now I get it, and then when your loved ones and your friends listen to it, it becomes like full circle. Chris, did you experience that at all? yeah
1: post podcast for me was was heavy um the <clears throat> I mean across the spectrum, my wife, when she first listened to it uh and and you and I talked about it on the podcast, you know there that was. I was very exposed, um, to your point of not hearing yourself, you know, we just had a conversation, we got talking and I really didn't even think about the fact that anyone was ever going to listen to the conversation that you and I are having. It was just you and I talking. And so my wife and I talked about that a lot, but then kind of the, the feedback that I got from the community and it wasn't just guys with similar backgrounds. It was guys from all across the spectrum. It was law enforcement guys. It was first responders. It was whoever that said, man, this thing that you said at some point in there that I didn't even think about, like it it was just Mike and Chris having a conversation, but this thing that you said resonated with me so much. I'm so glad that you said that because I never looked at it like that. And that for me, it was, it was scary, but it was empowering in that this is this is what we need to do, right? This is part of the process. It's part of recovering. It's part of helping your brothers out. Um, and it's, it's that sharing and being willing to be exposed and say, hey, man, this is who I am, and I'm good with it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think um, for people just listening to this and trying to get context for the understanding of SMU guys, special missions unit guys, both Lee and Chris, were operators in a special mission unit, and you guys both went through training together, right?
2: Yeah,
1: we did. We I mean, did? Yeah. I'll let you tell the story. It's your <laughs> podcast, brother. Step up to the plate. Yeah. Uh, so
0: so
2: you guys went through
0: training together, and this was post, uh, right after 9-11.
2: Right after 9-11, yeah. We went to selection in uh, September 2001. 2001, yeah. Yep. So we were 9-11 West Virginia class. Yeah. So we were, we were in West Virginia, and we were... Basically isolated from everyone, we didn't really know what was going on. Um, did they tell you? They guys gave all? us some updates on the chalkboard, yeah, um, here and there. But uh, for that thirty days, I mean, we were kind of isolated.
0: How did you feel, Lee, when you were in selection, and then that stuff was being chalked up? Did it, because you, you were a ranger before that, right? You were in regiment. <laughs> did you feel like? Uh, I don't know. Did you feel empowered? Like you
2: were like, oh, man, this is going to get real. Like this is something to take serious? I was 24 years old, you know, was in Ranger Battalion, first Ranger Battalion there at Hunter Armour Airfield for about four years. Um, I didn't know how big it really was. Mm. Like I knew what was going on, but I was so focused on selection that everything else was tiny to me. You know, I was so selfish, really, you know, yeah. um, that I knew that eventually as longer, longer I stayed in, in the military, the chances of me going to combat go up. Right. And I knew I wanted to go to combat surrounded by the best people with the best equipment. So I have a better chance of surviving. Yeah. Um, and that's really the real reason I went to selection. When I showed up at first range my platoon sergeant had long hair. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, yeah. We got high in tights, you know? Yeah. And, and those um, were the high in high and tight days. Right? Yeah. We all were No longer. Fre- yeah. Fresh haircut every
1: Sunday evening. Yeah. yeah.
2: No longer than one inch on top, tapered at the curvature of the head. Yeah, you know the blue wick standard. Um, but I was like, I thought this was, I, I signed up and had a rip contract and went right to Ranger Battalion and I showed up and um, I'm like, why, why does our platoon sergeant have long hair? They're like, oh, he he made selection. I'm like, well, I thought this was the you know the baddest <laughs> place in the world. This man. isn't the tip. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the tip. <laughs> I'm not quite on the tip yet. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh well, how do how do I go to selection? And they're like, whoa, whoa whoa, pump your brakes there, buddy. You just got here. So I knew I wanted to go to selection as soon as I could. Yeah. Um. So I. Did rotor-wing bilat, <laughs> fixed-wing bilat after bilat. Um, and then um, I went to the recruiters when they came. I was an E4. You had to be an E5. Um, but I was promotable. Um, I got a waiver from them to go because I would have been an E5 by selection. Um So I had all my paperwork done, uh, company commander signed off on it. And then my platoon sergeant, Sammy Fernandez, um, great platoon sergeant, he calls me down in his office and says, Hey, Lee, I know quite a few guys have gone to selection. Um, I think you need to wait a year. I think you need some more maturity. You need some leadership. And uh, I looked at him right there on the spot, and I said, okay. And he's like, just give me one more year. I'll promote you as fast as possible. I'll give you as much responsibility as I can, and then you'll be ready. Hmm. Um, so I pinned on my E8. I was or on my E. I was an E. I pinned on my E5. I was an E5 for eight months. He gave me a squad before I was even promotable to E6. Um, and then about a year and a couple months later, I went to selection. Wow. Um, at that time, my platoon sergeant had changed over, and uh, it was Andy Fernandez. Really. So I went from Sandy War, Fernandez. War, right? Wow. Yeah. So I went from Sandy Fernandez to Andy Fernandez. So Andy Fernandez, of course, um, followed. And uh,
1: Chris up, knows. Ended up in C-Squadron ends and me. Up,
2: Yeah. Ended up with you.
1: And then, yeah, like we talked about on the last podcast, and we ended up losing Andy. He was the first um, kind of casualty from soft, really. Uh, During the invasion of Iraq, that was April second, two thousand three, and that was
0: the big gunfight you described when you were you were pushing across during the invasion. Yeah, Yeah. long range, got hit from three
1: sides. Yeah, during during the invasion, Um, and uh, that Lee and I actually didn't know that that we had Andy in common. Until what a couple of months ago? Yeah. Oh my gosh! And it might have been post podcast. Actually, I came back, and and you and I had talked about two April and kind of the day the day's events. And then Lee was like, "Hey, you know?" Yeah. And we put that together. So all these wow. years we've known each other, we didn't know that we had that in common.
2: Yep. Yeah. So we we were lined up vehicles ready to go to the airfield to get loaded to head over to Iraq to go into H two. Um, and that's when we found Andy, found out about Andy. Um, wow. and he went right from OTC to, to, to the squadron, just like you did. Yep. Just, just like, like you went to Af- Afghanistan. Yeah. That was his
0: first rotation yeah. in combat with, with the unit, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and then later, I guess with the MSS at, in the green zone, um, did it have, the MSS in green zone have a name?
2: Yeah, actually <laughs> it was MSS Fernandez. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just posted a picture on my Instagram account of the me in a pool. And yeah. I did that because it was it's the pool at MSS Fernandez. Yeah. So it was kind if, of it was a it was if you me. know you know yeah, picture. exactly. <laughs> yeah. You
0: know it if you know it. I, I remember when it moved to BIOP and then uh, I was in the CIF at the time and we were rotating out of there in 06, 07, 08, and um we uh, you know we were like we're yeah, we're at MSS Fernandez and everybody used to talk about Andy. And that's that's crazy. So he was your platoon sergeant. Yeah. And before he got picked up, and then you were there in the gunfight that he was killed in.
1: Yeah, and weirdly, just real fast. And uh, we, we, did, we talked quite a bit about this. And I, I his brother actually reached out to me, and I know his brother. Um, but if you're listening, uh, I know you've talked to a bunch of guys. And um, I, I didn't know that members of his family didn't really know the story. Like, they had never been given an accurate account of that day. And I was kind of surprised at that. Um, so I spent an evening going back and forth with them telling him, and I wasn't with Andy like we talked about before we were separated in the position that we were in, but I felt like it was really important for him to hear at least what I knew. And I told him that was, this is my version from how I saw it, but these are the facts. And then after that, I did some digging to like, see what was out there. And it's so wrong, like the accounts that are out there are so inaccurate and it said that things happened that didn't happen and I was kind of surprised at that and I guess, well, not surprised because it's a soft unit and and nobody ever talks about it like we discussed, but surprised that the family at a minimum didn't know what reality was.
0: Yeah. When, when that th- that brought them closure, did you get the impression that that helped them kind of piece together some misinformation or disinformation?
1: Well, from him, his perspective, he absolutely loved it. Like he mm-hmm. and, and like I said, I was shocked. Um, like I had no idea. Like, I mean, I'm not the guy to tell you this story. I wasn't on his team. I was in a different troop. Yes, we were at the same place at the same time. And yes, I knew your brother, but I would have thought you would have known more of this yeah Um, but it was a different culture It was a different time that we're now like we said this is 17 years later Um, so you know back then we barely took photos because everything was close hold and that was relevant and important at the time and and nowadays I just you know that's a long time ago so yeah
0: yeah it was a different I mean we you guys were at the you know you guys were at the tip of the spear when we were operating at the speed of war learning as we went, and people, a lot of people don't understand that as kind of the the understanding of unit history starting in the '70s and then evolving through counterterrorism, you know, Haas's rescue requirements, and then everybody coming together in warfare, and then f- and then creating jobs for yourself because you have the capability, you have the right men, the right equipment, the right support mechanisms, and you, you were figuring it out, figuring it out as you went. And some of the things like you talked to be, talk to me about. Chris on the last thing was like the long range movement into uh, 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 Iraq early on. We didn't know what the right equipment was, we had to lay it out, we had to do the R&D, but no unit in the world at that time could do what the unit was doing back then and continues to do today. You know The I
1: crazy know. part about that too, again, Lee and I, have t- we, we were reunited after a bunch of years apart doing different things and, and Lee's come now to work for us at, at, at Tier, which is amazing. So I have him next to me every day. But so we talk a lot, like we see each other every day again. And we were talking about that. And his he actually, his squadron relieved us during the invasion. They were the squadron that bumped us out in the desert. Um and I didn't I – n- I guess I never thought about the fact that all of those things that you and I discussed, that lead up, that train up, all those things that we did, we did singular as a squadron. B was doing the same thing. Yeah. And we weren't doing it together. Wow. <laughs> Which means it was happening at two different places in the building, sort of unconnected. Yeah. Um. But for the same mission set, obviously you guys evolved and I'll let you go into that, but –
2: yeah, well, one, we went back to that same location you guys got in that big firefight, and we put up our American flags, and we tried to pick a fight. and <laughs> We didn't get
1: one, but we were trying yeah, hard. Because yeah. we killed everybody.
2: <laughs> you did. <laughs> Burn marks are still on the ground. Right? Um, but, but the one neat thing about that rotation was we spent you know so much time in the desert, doing desert mobility, holding the western side, and then we moved into Baghdad. And we started doing basically rolling up the deck of cards, you know.
1: Yeah, you guys were the first dudes to transition from desert mobility into direct action target of yeah. HVTS.
2: So we started doing CQB. We, you know, we were we were doing hard hits
1: off gowers, which was you insane. Know.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think about it now, you're like, mm, yeah, ridiculous. Well, I mean, at that time
0: in in warfare, nobody was doing. CQB in mobility ops, like rolling assaults, uh, offsets, nobody even understood really how to even do that. But you guys, because you trained that in, in your training in the OTC and operator training course, that was your mission set, right? So now it's just adapting the infill platforms, the conditions, but how you, your actions on the objective, did it change much from your training was it different than what you remember doing in training or was it really something similar
2: it was it was very similar at first and then that's one great thing about that organization it'll adapt to the environment that it's in yeah so as the environment changes the ttp's will change you know so it's um, always evolving it's everything is a living thing it's always evolving mm-hmm. yes exactly where you go from hitting things hard. And I don't want to get too deep into TTPs in this conversation. I'm mm-hmm. just throwing that out there. Tactics, techniques, and procedures. Right. right. Um, but it's the like you said earlier, it's a mindset of how you develop those TTPs. What is in the environment that's changing? You know, what intel are you getting to change? Hey, do we need to go hard? Do we need to go soft? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what type of bad guy is this, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
0: the unit is definitely like the Fortune 500 of modeling, you know, in counterterrorism, right? Because you're always adapting, learning, there's expertise, there's support mechanisms to make sure that you guys are always winning uh, or at least have a fair shot at winning and getting the upper hand. Let's talk about your first combat rotation with the unit, which was that trip after C Squadron. And you guys ripped in. Yeah, what was that experience
2: like? Because up to that point, did you did you get any combat and ranger regiment? No, no combat and ranger regiment. So I my first firefight, I woke up because I was sleeping underneath the gower.
1: Nice, <laughs> so familiar, right?
2: Nice. <laughs> I was the driver, and uh, my, Which for for people, just describe a, a, Jower a gower, people, a gower, or gower. Yeah, it's a four cylinder diesel six wheel vehicle mm-hmm. that um, was developed. Uh, I can't remember what country. Germany. Europe. Germany. Turnip truck. Turnip truck. But that's what it was developed for. It it drives through the fields of the turnips. Um and it, it's it's a sweet vehicle. I mean, it's like a four cylinder, but And everything's open, Bay, right? It's open. Yeah. We put a we put a um there's you know, there's guns on the front, back, top. Um but you live off it.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, your team lives off it. Slow as dirt, but the best quote I ever heard about a pen was uh if it could get traction, it could climb a vertical wall. Yeah. And it's a true statement.
2: And mm. a lot of people. Because of the wheel,
0: wheel base and the how the many wheels The torque. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: It, it's. And one of the things a lot of people don't know is a lot of our um, Gowers at the time were actually four wheel Gowers. And they upgraded them to six wheelers. My Gower that I drove, serial number 00003
1: which is amazing,
2: right?
0: Anyways. Yes. Inventing long-range mobility in that in those conditions. I mean, up to that point, the last time they did it was the Brits across northern Africa.
2: That's the first thing that pops in my head. Like, yeah. Real Pink deal, Panther, right?
0: Um, SAS guys. Um, so uh, you get woken up, and then what happens?
2: Well, first I had to orient myself and find out what the hell was going on. Um, my team leader, Eddie, was also a ranger. Um and he was also a uh, a maggot. Hmm. So we trained a lot on the 60. So that was the first time. He's like, get out the mortar. So I got to do some direct lay 60s. <laughs> wow, awesome. <laughs> so, Did you hand fire them? What are you doing? Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Have the small little plate. The M7 base yeah, plate. Yeah, got oh, yeah. Got your direct lay on them. Direct lay on them, because they were in the defilade. Um, <laughs> so that was my first fight. I didn't get to shoot anything except the mortar. So but um, so we, we had some skirmishes out there, and then we moved into town. Um and that, and that's when it was like an eye opener, right? I mean, everything out there in the open, there's distance, you know, mm-hmm. there's time with distance. But uh, when we moved into Baghdad and started going after um, strategic targets, that's when we were actually blowing doors and kicking some and getting some, you know.
0: Yeah. How was those overall experiences in in, in successes? You guys were killing and capturing. Did you, did you feel like you guys had the upper hand or, because I always remember, you know, even starting out in SF and then the commanders in extremist force for like TF-16, hearing the stories of you guys early on where you guys were doing daylight hits, where 160th was flying daylight, uh, you know, doing VI's daylight. Well, VI's
2: came later than that, mm -hmm. quite later, quite later than that. But it was it was twenty four hour ops. Yeah, for yeah. the first there was what, no two like, years. hey,
0: we're just doing night ops. It's you're doing night ops whenever it's advantageous. When the
2: target was ready to be prosecuted. Right? Yeah,
0: were you guys learning hard lessons? Did you have any instances of hard lessons? Learned? Yeah,
2: um, I guess the first real big learning lesson we had was Objective Peacock. Um, we came in on Gowers. Wait, is this that objective that we had talked about
0: before <laughs> with the? Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, Disco, I'll let you tell the story because you got to lay the groundwork for this. And this is a, a pretty epic um, lesson learned, right?
2: Yeah. <clears throat> so we were basically going after um, a high intel um, officer for mm-hmm. the regime. Uh, we got to intel where he was, and we were, we were doing a hard hit um, off vehicles um, to kind of set the stage. Um, I don't know where, you know, I'm kind of nervous about this, about the whole podcast, talking about procedures because of where we come from. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is, you know, different people look at it different ways. So I want to be able to tell the story in a way that people understand it, but also still um, respect the men. Yeah. In the community. Yeah. Okay. Totally get that. Okay. So. If I'm searching for words, that's why. Okay. Um, but we had, my team was on the, the front side um, of the building, uh, main breach. Um, other teams breached at other points. So we have multiple breach points coming in. Um, as, as we breached, we we flew, we flew into the, uh, the front of the building, and the guy um, was already up. And he did basically what they call Beirut Special. So Beirut Special, you got an AK. Um, just the just the gun itself is pointed down the hallway. It's kind of Hollywood's, you know, you can picture in Hollywood how they
1: do that. Like he held it out there. And, yeah. yeah.
2: Just kind of held it around the corner and sprayed. Mm-hmm. Um, so my team came in. Um, number one man, he, he saw the barrel, so he started moving towards a threat. Uh, two man... Um, There was an open door to his left, so he immediately went in and turned. guy behind him followed, and then there was a gap between me and number one man. I was four-man coming in. Um, And as I was trying to—I didn't know there was a barrel, um, so I was trying to speed up to close that gap between the number one man and two-man. And as I moved, the the, the room opened up to the right. So as soon as I got to that, I had to turn to the right and clear that corner because he kept going. And as soon as I turned right to clear that corner, the guy opened up and sprayed down the hallway. Um, number one man fell, um, and at that time, number two and three men went from the main door—they had already cleared that room—and they were coming out in the hallway. And and into went, gunfire. In, into the gunfire. Yeah. So the team leader—he um, took—he took a round through both um, thighs. Wow. So we had two guys hit. Right off the bat, first burst, basically. I finished clearing the room, and then I ran over to the doorway, open door. The guy's still shooting. By that time, you have the troop sergeant major coming in with his gun up, and he takes a round through uh, his finger, um, off his chest plate, and through his tricep. So now we got three people hit. Um, Some guys are moving around. Uh, A-team moves forward. And I'm sitting on that corner, and I'm like, "I'm gonna fucking die." Well, it's a button hook. It's like the worst turn on the range when you train, right? Yeah. Everyone, into gunfire. Into gun. Into gunfire, right? Yeah. I'm like, um, well, I guess a banger would help. And I, and I, this is all going through my mind, like this and, and life and it's like cutting away a parachute I, it yeah. probably feels like an eternity but it, it happened in a tenth of a second yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and I had some problems with afterwards I thought I hesitated on, on that but uh, I got feedback from the guys like no but it, to me it was like my mind slowed everything down um, uh, uh, someone threw a banger it didn't even get into the room it landed right in front of my feet in the, in the uh, threshold of the door and I was like, well, that's the banger. So I guess I'm turning. So I turned the corner. Um, as I turned, he shot me. I shot him. Luckily, um, he shot me in the forward assist and in the chest, in my oh. chest plate. And I shot him seven times in the face. Hmm. So, um, so that was <laughs> remedied very quickly. Teams come in. I, we, we finished clearing that room there's an open door to the right, so I get up and I move to the open door, I gotta squeeze, and I took a step to the left out of the stack, and I was like, something's not right. Um, I didn't really know what was going on. I knew that I didn't feel good, I knew that my buddy was laying back there, and I was like, well, I don't feel right, I'm gonna go back and work on him. And, uh, And that's what I did, I went back there, by that time, they were calling medics forward. Um, I pulled off his kit. It, it's not like I thought it was. This is my first gunfight, first gunshot wound, and there's this hole, just oh, just one little hole. Um, no blood, and and then I'm like, and then I started kind of hyperventilating. My, my body my, went into shock and started catching up to what was actually going on. Um, and one of the 18, well, one of the operators who was an 18 Delta also, um, he sets me down and he's <laughs> you know those that the kit we had had that uh, pull cord what was it um, the quick oh, release quick yes, release yes yes yeah, yeah it the was parale- a quick carrier right yeah, yeah yeah it was a paraclete. and uh, he goes to pull that and i'm like no 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 stop stop I don't want to put this thing back together, so we very carefully.
1: <laughs> oh <God>. hey, <laughs> For the record, <laughs> for the record, right? Oh, shit, <laughs> we say this to people yeah. all the time. Yeah. Remember the old cutaway cable? How much oh, that sucked, right? That was such you a had to have yes. an engineering degree yeah. to put that thing back together—that's yeah.
2: awesome—and some time. Yeah. So not um, take it off to treat me. Yeah. So I, I was like, whoa, whoa, back whoa! Back so we took off my helmet. I took off my kit and checked it out. You know. Um. So we learned we learned a lot of lessons in that. Um, just to finish that part of the story, uh, we x filled. I had to go to Kuwait to get a chest x ray to get cleared, so I could do, so I could go back, and I did another op 24 hours later. Because
1: you took one up upper left side of your chest, right, right, right in the plate, plate stopped the round. Um, but like what most people don't know are guys that haven't been shot and I haven't been shot, but I work in ballistics as we do now, <laughs> yeah. you know, back face deformation behind that plate, mm-hmm. you know, the standard is, is, is 44 millimeters. That's, uh, that's a lot. That's, yeah. that's a whole lot of space into your chest cavity, even though the bullet did not penetrate your body. So you took a punch, a punch. like you've yeah. never been punched before. I had before. a big purple <laughs> tit.
0: Really? Because you got shot at point blank range with a 762 by 39 round. Yeah. Point blank. I mean, the dude's muzzle stick. velocity.
1: Yeah. At muzzle. <laughs> at muzzle. Yeah.
0: At muzzle. Yeah. Oh my god. The true
1: worst case. Yeah. Example.
0: What do you think about what do you think about that instance where you didn't realize you were hit is from? Is there because because I, I I've you know I've ran around the house as a SIF guy and ran around with you guys as a, a DS guy when you get when I'm running around and things are happening there really isn't a lot of adrenaline until shit kicks off, right? Till the gunfire
2: starts. Did you feel that adrenaline? Or did you know that you were in that kind of zone? I I matured probably 10, 20, 30 years in that five seconds. Wow. Your first gunfight? That was my first real gunfight. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> and I mean it was like every like the blinders coming off. You see things. Like when I went back to the battlefield, I saw things. Like
0: it's just, it it was, opened I up. was different. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the uh, what do we use? The kind of analogy is free fall analogy where, you know, the first time you're looking through Coke straws, you can't, you don't even see your altimeter really. And then after you do it again and again, your whole world opens yeah. up, right? You, you see think, every little you're thing. Think, you're daydreaming about stuff that doesn't even relate to what you're doing. Yeah. You just, yeah
2: you're just yeah. going so, so fast. So when you say the adrenaline is like, I never, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. I'm just, just like, oh, it's, it's our job. Yep. You know? Yeah.
0: And then when you get hit, and uh, I'm assuming your body was pumped with adrenaline at least because you didn't feel anything, right? Right.
2: I'm guessing, yes. So it took me a little bit to realize what was going on, Mm. and my body actually started hyperventilating and shock. Like, I remember in ranger school getting into the cold water for a river crossing, Mm. right? I remember those. Remember that? That sucks so bad. And your body starts hyperventilating because it's going into shock, but Mm -hmm. you're like, mentally, you're like, what is wrong with me? I'm in fucking good shape. Why yeah. am I, why am I breathing so hard? Yeah. But your body has, it's an automatic yeah, response. it's an automatic response. Uh, and that's what it felt like. I was like, something's going on here. Hmm. Um, what kind
0: of impact did that moment have on the way moving forward? One, I, I see kind of like, just, this is my perspective, just with the 30,000 foot view is you shot a dude in the face, seven times point blank range. If they were looking for validation, or affirmation that you were who you said you were. Because you n- you're never proved, right, in combat until you're proved. You're never – there's always a question in people's heads. And it, and maybe it's not vocalized, but it's like, does he really get what it takes? And maybe it's a question in yourself. But then you get through that instance, and you're successful. You win. And then that builds confidence, but also, did it breed any insecurity, like, moving forward? Because like you said, just like most operators in the unit do, you're – second guessing and criticizing yourself to be better like fuck i fucked up i should have been better
2: i think for my for my personal experience it was more of at this time i'm 25 now i've been shot in the chest first combat at this point i'm fucking superman Mm. you know so if if anything it gave me more confidence in my equipment in my training so it it's like a a heavyweight champion boxer. Mm-hmm. When you get in the ring, you you better feel like you are the baddest mother trucker on the planet. Yep, and that's what I felt like. And and, and 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 Chris and other people will attest. I probably had the attitude to go along with it. He he did, all that. You know the <laughs> funny thing
1: on, on the backside of that, right? So you know the the you, you even though you're in the same organization with another person, you're in two different places in the building and different operational tempos, and you rarely ever see each other. Yeah. right. You pass each other in the hallway on occasion. But when a guy takes a round of the chest that you went through the operator training course with, that that's your brother that came up with you, um, you ask questions. So I can I can I can't tell you where I was, but I remember the conversation the first time somebody told me, "Hey man, did you hear uh, Lee Busby took one in the chest?" And I said, "Well, well, what happened?" And they said, "He shot the dude in the face seven times." <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I I literally I think my I, my mindset was. Yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> yes, yes, because that means I mean you're,
0: look, you're a warrior at the tip of the spear with fellow warriors. It's almost like uh, what's that movie where uh, everybody's trying to prove himself, and they're all kids, and they're and the that dude killed the lizard. It's like the. What is it called? The, there's always an analogy with it where it's Lord like... Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Flies, Lord right? The flies. So you're competing constantly to be at the top, whether that's an internal hierarchy or <laughs> literal your call sign getting to the top. You, you progress forward in, in those moments, in those instances, really define who you are, right? It's like you're the guy who shoots people in the face, right? You're the guy who gets shot and continues to move forward. As you move forward in combat... Um, was there any more adversity I'm, – I'm, I'm being facetious, there is more adversity, but what's the next point of adversity that was a defining moment for you in your career uh, early war as you're c- continuing to evolve as an operator? Was it the next fight? Was it the next –
2: No, I – I hate to say this, but I had a good time, man. Yeah. I was – I mean – i didn't really understand you know and it was like it was natural it's like i felt more comfortable there than i did back home you know yeah i was like okay what's what's the op where where am i supposed to be what are my responsibilities i know he's on my left he's on my right i trust them let's just do this let's what's next faster
0: you know um what was it you said it wasn't adrenaline so what do you think it was was it was it the comfort level? Because you, because when you're when you're in a flow state,
2: it's so fluid that it doesn't feel real, so it feels comfortable, right? Right. Was it that? Yeah. I mean, and I and you get that, you know, right before the charge goes off, right before the breach goes off, you know, uh, thirty seconds out, you check all your stuff. Yeah. Chris said the same thing. He right. Got the same feeling. Yeah. yeah. Check it out. You know, uh, and then you're joking and smoking. A minute out and, and, I mean, literally joking and smoking across the the radio. Or sleeping. Or sleeping for some guys, right? Um, But keeping it light. And and then it's a switch. You just turn it on. And you go into that state of just business. Um, Compassion gets turned way down, which I work with now. um, Because you're not making emotional decisions you're making very calculated decisions on the information you have at that time mm. you know and it's just constant what new information new information more decision more decision and that's all cqb is really is it's a series of making good decisions
0: yeah i like it put that way that's that's really eloquent when what's the first hiccup in this flow state you're you're going to war you're doing combat operations and you're in, in your element, right? Yeah. You, you're tapped. What's the first moment that this that you felt disruptive? That you felt like, whoa, this isn't this isn't in the pattern. This is different.
2: Well, the first thing that t- pops in my head is um, oh, oh five. Um, we, I mean, we were going out every night, out in the Triangle of Death, right? I remember that? Yeah. Remember that? And we were getting it on. We were mixing it up. C Squadron was mixing it up before us. We fall right into your guys' shoes and mixing it up. And um,
1: yeah, oh five oh six, like we all say, that was the gunfight year. Yeah, no,
2: no number six, hooping and a- hollering. Um, so that's when things really changed for me, where <clears throat> I was acting two IC on a team. Um, which is fast right that's yeah I'm, I'm kind of ahead of the power curve I'm doing yeah, all right um, <sighs> I, I'm first man over the wall and I got two military-aged males sleeping in the front yard with weapons next to them on the on the front side of the house um, is this daylight or dark night. night it's dark it's real dark Um. And to kind of preference at this, uh, about a week and a half before, we flew out. We were out in Al-Qaim, and we hit an IED, and we basically lost a whole team. Mm. Um, so things weren't right. You know what I mean? The troop we had, it was a composite troop. It was uh, our two teams, and then another team from another troop came just to plus us up to do this op. So thing, it just, you know, it wasn't fluid. Um oh fuck. So I go over the wall, first one over, and I make a radio call. I got two military military-aged males in the front yard. Roger. I put two of my guys to cover them. The rest of us go over to the the to the front side, which is an open door with a light of it. Another team's come over and um, they say they're looking in the the back right corner windows, and they're like, we got we got three males sleeping with weapons and grenades in the back right corner of the building. So I'm, I'm, I'm mapping that out, you know, in my head. Okay. Um, we stack. Everyone gets to their breach points. Charges go off. Um, I enter the front side, and I start clearing towards that back right corner. And before I can even break the threshold of that room, there's a guy sleeping or laying there. Um with a weapon in his hand and there's, um, so I start, I, I, I start filling him in from the hallway. So as soon as I break the threshold of that door, I start, I start getting ricochet. Like, like when you're shooting steel, right? You kind of get that. It's not a like frag, fr- yeah. you, know, you know, because I got, we got across from me, I have windows and there's guys shooting in the windows um, they threw bangers in, nine bangers in, before before we got in there. Another team's coming in from the right-hand side. So I shoot this guy as I meet the threshold door. I get real small because I'm trying to make room for the guy behind me to get in as I turn. Um, as I turn, I see um, an operator fall. Finish clearing. There's a guy down to my right with a grenade in his hand, so I put some rounds in him. Um... So this is this this op is probably the one of the hardest things that happened to me in the unit is what <clears throat> so as I looked at that and I saw the operator fall immediately I go over to the guy that I shot I clear his weapon I drop the mag I open the bolt and there's not a round in the magazine or there's not a round in the chamber which tells me that he didn't even get a round off, right? Well, he's the only one who could have shot the operator that fell. So something ain't right. Had another operator come in who was shooting through the windows, came through. He's like, oh, "All right, we got it on." You know what I mean? I was like, mm, "This ain't right." And um, so we had we had some um, blue on blue action. Um, the, the operator that, that actually got shot ended up losing his leg. Uh, it was a ricochet um, and there was other complications, but he ended up losing his leg. So he's got the, the other guy has a more elevated position. He's shooting down through a window. No it's actually not an elevated position. it he's was straight on. It was right on so it was one of those windows that that was uh, went you know about two feet from the bottom of the yep. the floor. Yeah. Um, they all stacked up on those windows and they started shooting on breach, um, but there was there were several things that happened on that op in that room that broke TTPs, our TTPs, um, and that's why he got hurt. Yeah. Period. Right. TTPs are there to protect us, um, and then from there they did an investigation. And in that investigation, it came out the likely, most likely course of action that happened was a ricochet from this guy, me, um, ricocheted and and shot the operator, and that's where it came from. Which, now we're, we're at a point where this ain't my first firefight. Yeah. And as I collapsed that room to finish clearing it, he fell, And I know the timing of where my barrel was, I wasn't shooting, the time I shot at the guy under the window, it just doesn't add up, right? So, wow, I didn't know we were going to jump into this shit.
0: (laughs) Or just ricochets, period. To even contest that a ricochet might be the issue is just so subjective, right? Because it's a ricochet. Yeah. Like, how do we calculate ricochets in real time in war? It's... Like, how do you even assume that?
2: Right. And we all know that green tip ammo does some weird stuff. Absolutely. In yeah. a shoot house. Um, which, funny I say that because it wasn't green tip that, that went into him. Mm. Um, they did an investigation. Um, safety officer for the unit did the investigation. Um, and there were some people in the unit were okay with it. Like okay, ricochet. It's shit, combat. Shit happens. Shit happens. Mm-hmm. You know, For the
1: record, I I got shot in the face from a ricochet in training from a teammate. Right. Like yeah. like as an example, yeah. so people understand yeah. that. Yeah.
0: In OTC, I took a, sh- a ricochet from a forty cal from Glock twenty two, and it cut my like. I had to get it surgically removed from my face. Yep like that it happens all the time.
2: And you're still so good looking.
0: I try to be. I put my <laughs> bushy eyebrows
1: hide hide the, the scar. Well, I, real f- cuz you're going to cuz this is you're going to get into this here in a second. But I, I want to say something. So we went through the training course together. Yeah. Lee was a, was a cocky young dude coming out of regiment. Um I didn't like him when I first met him because he was freaking good at everything.
0: Yeah. He was and, a stud. I see those old pictures and like fuck he yeah, still man. got it. Man. Like
1: <laughs> he he crushed the Oak horses, he crushed PT. He was good on the range, you know? And when you see that and you're a guy that's the sponge trying to take it all in and just do enough to like hang on and be there. Yeah. Like there's a little bit of resentment and it mm-hmm. takes time. And then we got to know each other. and We ended up on the same team yep. in OTC, which changed everything. Cause now he's a dude on my left or the dude on my right. And our relationship evolved and we got to know each other a lot. But I never felt like that. I didn't finish the course like that, yeah. but he went to squadron as a stud, as a guy that was at the top of his class, as a guy that they knew was going to be a performer. Yeah. So then he goes to his first combat deployment. He gets, he takes a round. And and finishes the target. Um and, and that was early on, that was the first. He was the first dude in our class to take around like there were there were all these things and he kept doing the job. And now you fast forward to all these years later, and he's in combat and some crazy shit happens and somebody says, Well, yeah, well, I think it was Lee's bullet that hit that that dude. Mm. So just to give some context, man, yeah. Yeah. and I'll let you keep going, but well, how did you I mean, let's talk about how you f-
0: because I can tell you, you feel a, a certain way about it right now. Because I could just read your body language, and it frustrates me too. Because I'm just thinking about that in the context of your your experience up to that point, and then the absolute, which is war, which is war. There's so many things happening to scale that down and to do a safety kind of thing. Just seems out of the ordinary. What, what was the talk? Talk to me through this situation. How, how did you, how did it make you feel, and, and where did it put you at? <clears throat>
2: Well, that's that's the thing that's that's even more ironic about this whole thing. It, it wasn't about the situation that I went through. I was, I was confident in my actions, my decisions, my shots. Um, what really affected me after that was how it was treated. Mm. Um, like you said, you're you're acting too. I see. That's kind of early for you. I'm like, yeah, it was. And um, the culture that we live in or lived in, I don't live in that culture anymore, um, is selection's an ongoing process. And I live that, and I still struggle with that. I feel like if I do one thing wrong, I'm going to get fired. And and that's something that I still work with today. Um, because we got there so young and it was ingrained in us, Um, selection's an ongoing process, selection's an ongoing process. And you see dudes make mistakes and get, get sent down the road, you know? Um, and I valued that job. I, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I was good at it. I liked it, you know? It it was, that's what I went there for. And then, and then it all turned on me, um, the, the culture started eating me up the people there were a group of guys that didn't have compassion they were they were headhunting to they wanted me to get fired even though I didn't break any rules I didn't break any TTPs no moral rules you know um, they just it was it was a cultural thing that just we eat our own Um was it from senior guys at the They are the kind time? of across the board, yeah. There were yeah. some senior guys involved. Luckily, there were some senior, more senior guys that were um, level-headed. level-headed. And they're like, hey, you guys, just go pound sand. Um, I kind of um, – they, they took me off an assault team, which was my dream, right? I'm getting ready to be a 2IC, which to me and most operators you'll talk to is the dream job of the building. Um, you get to do everything, but not have the responsibility of a team leader, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and they moved me over to recce. Um, I'm not a recce guy, you know. I'm not. A, I'm not even really a gun guy. Um, but um, the way the culture is, it, it was very hard on me. So I just kind of threw myself at work. You know, I went. I did hand to hand combat for three years straight, twice a day. That's, I went in, I went in there and talked to Spencer and, and Mingy and those guys and was like hey I don't know how to fight teach me you know and I did footwork for two to three weeks before I could even throw a punch and that's all I did was I trained you know I got my cold poor zeros I worked on my combo I got my shoot my shooting on um, was it a blessing in disguise I, it was in in the aspect of becoming a better better operator definitely Um because I was just so focused, like when I went to work, I trained. I didn't sit around in the team room like some guys and and jaw jack and, um, I mean, people just didn't talk to me.
1: It, it it hurt. I I found it me sorry I like I found it interesting because it's a culture of when you're let's say you're in training and you're in the shoot house or whatever and or you're on the range or whatever you're in the shoot house and you have you know, silhouettes up in the rooms. When you hot wash a hit as a team, multiple rooms, it might even be multiple buildings. When you hot wash that hit, somebody goes, hey, who threw that shot right shoulder in building two outside of the A zone? And immediately the dude that did it goes, oh, man, that was mine. I got a little hurried on my second shot when we entered that yep. room. And I, I pulled one four inches outside of an A zone that's the culture so when something like this happens and the operator goes nah man i did a b and c i know when i pulled the trigger i know what i pulled the trigger at i knew where my weapon was pointed i can tell you the whole breakdown of that situation because we all can do that and then to have people question that is rough in combat yeah yep The, the operator that took the ricochet Who's senior to me,
2: who has some combat experience, right? He told the safety officer it wasn't from me. He knew it didn't come from that direction. Hmm. How does how did you move forward with that, or did you ever? Was that something
0: that you just kind of was seated, and then it, it just weighed on you, or was it? It still weighs
2: on me. Yeah. Um, though it was remedied. Um. Why do, why do you think it weighs on you so much? Because I, I, I,
0: me and Chris talked about this, the experiences that you have, and maybe for, that would be for normal people, not even a big deal, right? Some people would move forward from that, but that culture permeates a, a different kind of feeling that you put on yourself. That burden it like amplifies the burden you put on yourself, and you feel guilty for that. Why is that?
2: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with no one's harder on ourselves than us. Mm-hmm. Right. When I pull a, a shot to the top right corner, or whatever, I'll be the first one to raise my hand. But I'm not gonna raise my hand if I didn't pull the if it's not my shot. Right. It's like getting your integrity questioned. Exactly. You know That's yeah. exactly it. So I got all these I guys th- hate that. who I look up to mm-hmm. question my integrity. Um my Questioning my capability as an operator, right? Um, So, luckily, over time, we had a new um, CSM come in who was aware of the situation. And he has a relationship with the FBI. And he got the rounds that were in the operator's leg. They took them. They had them analyzed. And... um, 100% was not green tip. Um, There was only one operator on that target that was not shooting green tip. And he was being attached to us from a different special mission unit. Wow.
0: So another, yeah. Wasn't even one of your guys. Wasn't even. A unit guy. Right. So. Fuck. So, after how, how much
2: longer after
0: that happened did they discover that and was there any redemption in that?
2: So, my CSM, he I was actually out that week because I was, got shoulder surgery and um, he did a PowerPoint presentation because that's what we do, right? We do PowerPoint. <laughs> and um, now we do Zoom calls. Now we do Zoom calls. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, he did a PowerPoint presentation for the whole squadron explained how this is how, whose it was and why it happened. Um, Cause they pulled it out of his leg. Right. And he kept it. And so I got some phone calls, some apologies. Really? Right. So I, I was at rare. home on, That's on con leave. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were in good intentions, right? I had someone that I looked up to very much who was, who was, was like, wanted me gone, called me and said, Hey Lee, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you felt like you shot Chaz all this time. And I'm like, hold the phone, you know. At and, and no point did I ever think it was my shot. Thank you for your call. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. But rumors are rumors. And when I finish my team time and I go to S&T and i and i am an instructor and I'm, sh- and I'm teaching CQB or I'm teaching hand-to-hand or teaching, um, you know, um, rifle marksmanship, whatever – you have guys from other squadrons who don't know the truth. Because what happened was is the CSM presented it to us and then he went to the command and said, "Hey, I want to present this to the whole building. Hey, I want to go over to this other SMU, present it to them so they can learn from it." Yeah. Which is the right answer. And the command said, "Hey, let's as a while ago. Yeah. Let's just let's just leave it alone." They
0: don't want that dirty laundry.
2: Right. Internal business. Internal business. Yeah. Right? So rumors are rumors. Whatever you hear first must be the truth, right?
1: And that's back to like you and I laughed about Mike. Like, you know, like I said on our podcast, if you ask one unit operator about another one, one guy will tell you I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire, and the other would say he was the best dude and I'd go to war with him any day. Yeah. And that's it's it's that culture, man. It's that it's that alpha world of I don't even care. I don't want to know that dude's deal. I heard this, that's bad.
0: Well, Lee, let me get your opinion on that because, you know, we, me and Chris had the conversation, but I've heard this routinely in the unit, being associated with the unit, downrange with the unit, whatever it, uh, 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 scenario where I've asked guys, like, hey, well, you heard about, what's his name? Like, how's he doing? Like, oh, that piece of shit. Like, oh, okay. Well, what's the deal with him? Like, oh, he's just a piece of shit, blah, blah, He's just going back. I'm like, wait, isn't that dude on your team? Yeah, yeah but he left and... And there's this very, or I'll ask somebody else and they are like, no, dude, he's doing really well. He's, he's accelerating. He's fucking doing real well as an operator. And you just get so many different opinions about each other in the building. And that's even in the same team. Yeah. And it just always boggled my mind. Like even, you know, you know, I've told this story on the Andy Stuff podcast and we, I talked to you guys about it because, you know, I look at you guys as big bro, bros and, to have unit members try to call me out for not even being in the building, like this is, you know, I did. Long story short, I did the Andy Stump podcast. I talked about where I got in trouble in OTC, which I did. Um, I don't talk about the details of that because it's nobody's fucking business, right? Uh, to be honest. Um, but never got into yard, which means never to return. I didn't get into yard. And I'll say that you get people who are listening to this, who are, you remember, you can look at the fuck up. I never got into yard. <laughs> I had the opportunity to do something else in the building, but I didn't want to, because I wanted to shoot people in the face. So I fucking left. Went with B, squatter down range. The best one. And was killing dudes down range. Hey. <laughs> yeah. They were aggressive as fuck. Tom, Tom was my but they were commander. Always, they
1: were always one rotation behind C. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's true. That's yeah. true. I
1: like to set them up so you guys yeah. can hit them out of the park. It's yeah.
0: so true. Um, but, uh, you know, I went down range and killed some guys. I killed a lot of guys with uh, the SIF under B and had a good time, came back, and then I went back to the unit with the intent to go into training, and then uh, never did. I mean, the reasons I never did is because the, the, the guy I had a personality conflict with was a troop CSM, and we had some issues. And it, Long story short, it just never came to fruition. I eighty eight and then I fucking left. Well, I got these calls of a fucking reporter calling me out, um, which is crazy because his co-host, which I won't say his name, but his co-host and me went to a fucking Jumpmaster MTT for the unit. Like, we, we know each other. Right. We were there in the same building. And, and I don't think it's his fault, but this journalist called me out because two other unit members looked me up, and they didn't see that I was in the building. They just saw that I got in trouble in OTC, and they're like, oh, this dude's stolen valor. He was never there. He was there for, like, a couple months. It's like, no, I went all the way through, got in trouble, and then I came back and served in the unit for a, a few years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that kind of behavior... Even after the fucking fact, which I've seen in a lot of people outside where wh- why I'm glad we had these conversations to like men's kind of our understanding of it, but maybe vocalized to other people who are thinking about it, that this is problematic and we don't need to be doing this to each other. Why do you fucking think that is? Is it somebody expressed to me recently that it's all the NCOs, right? There, there's only few slots. There's only... Troop CSM positions, there's squadron CSM. There's only a few positions that everybody's fighting for, so it's gotta be a cutthroat kind of thing. It's
1: attrition by whatever means. Yeah. Is it that? What I mean, what is it? I don't think it's that.
2: Hmm. I think it's a cultural thing. I yeah. think it is you gotta you got a bunch of bunch of high intelligent um, individuals who are loyal to the mission. So this is going to – we might have to dissect this a little bit because people might take this the wrong way. There's some units that are – they're very loyal to each other. The unit, by keeping its morality, its, moral, its compass correct, it is either you stand up and take credit for that shot or I'm going to stand up and I'm going to point my finger at you and say, hey, motherfucker, you took that shot. I saw you. Right. So it's very policing, which which is a good thing, yeah. right? It keeps everyone yeah. out. Yeah. And yeah. a necessary a, evil. And a necessary evil. At that level. At that level. And I think that's wh- – it just goes too far. Um, and I think that's where it derives from. That's where it, it comes from in the culture. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way past training, past – combat. You know, even in combat we got to have compassion for each other. Um so I think that's where it comes. Everyone's ready to hey, if you're if you're saying the wrong thing, I'm going to point out that you're saying it. or if you're doing the wrong thing, I'm going to make sure that you're not you don't continue doing the wrong thing. Um that's where I think it comes from.
0: Is it OGs in the building who have more experience and they have more blue chips and they're just the guys who kind of create the culture or is it a combination of, of, of just shit factors that come together.
2: Well, there is some of that where I mean you have to sh- you have to grow. like when I was I had I had to overcome that when I was 24, 25, fucking running and gunning, I would say do anything. I didn't care who you were. I don't care how long you were there. Um, I had as you're there longer, you have to you have to grow as an operator. You have to grow as a human. Um, and there's decisions that I made in when I was that young that I wouldn't make now. Um, and that's a good thing as a leader, right? As a leader in the building and you, as you move up, the longer you're there, you're, you're, you put into more responsibility. Hey, you're going to go run this outstation. You're going to go, you have to be able to elevate your game and make sure that you're doing the right thing when no one's looking, and if someone is doing the wrong thing, you have the the moral courage to stand up and say, "No, you're not going to do that."
1: Mm. Um, and I think we do a pretty good job of that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even know that it's a, that it's that it's a knock. I think when you when you're a a junior dude on a team, the decisions that you make and your actions and the things that you do impact you and maybe the dude on your left and your right. As you move up through the, the chain of command, your decisions and your and your actions impact a larger number of people. So you do do some growing. Yep. You view the world a little differently. And whereas you might have been that young asshole that did whatever, uh, I think you hit a point where, you go, yeah, I was that dude too, but now I have to hold people to a different standard because my actions impact greater people. I don't know that it's – I think it's a necessary evil for an organization of that caliber that's charged with that level of precision. Um, The thing that I don't get <laughs> <laughs> is I, I don't get how – a guy that you know, that you've worked with, that you've trusted with your life, that you know is capable, 10 years down the road makes a mistake, and everyone, even post-career, turns their back on that dude like he didn't do all the things that he did. Yeah. that That's, the to me, the baffling part. The community is so small. Like you and I talked about, Mike, and Lee and I talk about this all the time because we see each other every day now. Thank God. Thank like God wonderful for both of us, but it's, it's why, like, why are we not going? Yeah, man, like dude was an animal and, and great at it and did great things for the organization and for his country and his family. And, and yep, he made a poor decision late in his career for a bunch of reasons that not all of us understand still to this day, which we understand a little more each year that goes by but why would we ostracize that dude? Why wouldn't we pull that dude in?
2: And I, and I call that a fail of leadership. So you, you, and we all see this, right? You're like, oh, I can't believe this, this CSM, he's, he's kicking someone out or he's, he's, he's punishing this person. He used to do this when he was younger. We yeah. all know those guys. Yeah, yeah. And we also know that as you move into those positions, you got to set the example for others to follow, right? But as that leader... He has to have compassion and understanding, and look at it as, okay, what's the circumstances? Why is this person making these decisions? If it's earlier on in their career, then it it might it, they might take off early, right? If, That's what I said the other yeah, day. Yeah, and and it was a really
1: good conversation I think we had the other day. I said character flaws are evident very we, early when you're in a hypercritical environment right. like that. That they present themselves within the first year or two of a dude operating in that environment, and they're gone. Character flaws do not surface a decade later right? after you've been at war. That's coming from something else.
2: And that's where I'm saying it's a leadership flaw of, hey, you got a guy there who has a bunch of blue chips and he's doing the right thing. And he's he's 10, 12 rotations into this. And now he has a character flaw? Why? Yeah. Well, kick him out. Yeah. No, actually, we should pull him in closer. Yes, yes, yes. We should have compassion for him. Maybe... Maybe set him on the bench.
1: Sure. Maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't need to be in that environment because he's a risk to himself or others right now. Right. But take care of him. But take care of him. But take and, care and of how can we learn from this and better everybody else yeah. with that dude?
0: Yeah. I, what's weird to me is is that I've seen you guys evolve in the unit and the technical skill sets are always paramount, right? To Let's adapt the TTPs to technically be more proficient as we evolve through war. And, you know, being adapted to change is one of the main ways that you're successful. But why is it not, like you say, the compassion and psychology of literally taking care of the guy's lives? Like when I was a team sergeant at SF, my number one priority was making good men, right? If I took care of the men as men outside of their technical uh, wants and needs when, when being SF guys then I was taking care of the foundation of them being better opera, or in this, in this case, assaulters in the SIF uh, or snipers in the SIF. So why have we forgotten to do that? Like I, I heard the uh, – That's
2: that's good leadership, right? Yeah. I heard Ferris talking about it. And there's guys like time, that. But- there, I've had a team leader, Eddie, was like that. He made me a better operator. He trained me. But that's not what that building's for. That building is – we have a mission – that is critical it's it's a no-fail mission and you're like hey we're we're, our job is to make better operators no our job is to complete the mission successfully and that's the number one priority
0: Mm -hmm. before i went to selection i read the read that book the men the mission and me which is pete blabber and uh, you know (laughs) not with a now with a lot of understanding of of uh of that, cert That those operations and what was going on in the building. He was almost a podcast. You know that he 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 bailed out on us three times
1: because you called him Pete Blabber, I know, Yeah, I, know. I mean, what?
0: I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm phonetic, man. I know, it's I'm crazy. phonetic. <laughs> sorry. Um. So when For when those uh, at home, it's Blaber. I know, it's Blaber.
1: <laughs> My
0: bad, Pete. Sorry. The. Uh, it's, it's weird because when when you get, when I got boarded in West Virginia, I, the, the priority that I always assumed were the priorities were the men first, right? The men were always first, and the mission came second to the men. But you're like the third person out of the building out of five people who have told me the only priority is the mission. Yeah, absolutely. Is that it? Yeah. That's completely it.
1: And that's what messes with your mind, right? As a former unit operator, anybody – I think post-career, like later on, like as you go through the the evolution of healing and getting better and just being, I think you look back on it and you see all these things and you change as a person and you go, man, that's really, really messed up. But is it, it's kind of necessary. Like, yeah. I don't know how I would fix that. Yeah, It's unfortunate post-career, but in the Post-life. organization- yeah. post life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but in the organization, I don't I, I don't know how you fix that, you know? And the you you mentioned it earlier, but the whole families and I forget what they called it, socom launched that big
0: yeah, you know, initiative the
1: And and I don't care if people hear me say it, it was bullshit.
0: Bullshit completely. It, it was, never
1: ex- it briefed so well. It briefed well. Yeah. It was lip service check a block. That's it. Bullshit. It it had nothing to do with any of us yeah it was yeah yeah we're doing something and but 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 again it's the oxymoron of but i don't know man like i don't i don't know that you can do anything i think you use dudes until you can't anymore
0: you spit them out
1: to accomplish that task and then you move on to the next one yeah and that's that's the the frustrating thing of all of it
0: Hmm. all right let's get back to the path man this is whoa man so you 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 do S and T. You take you to the point where you're you S and T. Did you still feel that residual like cloud, uh, knowing that some guys didn't understand?
2: I did. I I mean, people treat you different. They they talk about you. People ask questions. Hey, you know, douche over here was saying this. Is that true? Because some guys do have the balls to come up and talk to you about. It. No, that's not true. And and you get to correct it here and there, but. It's always it's like I said it's a rumor. Whatever rumor you hear first must be the truth. Yeah. Um. But what I just before I was an instructor uh, when I came out of REKi, I went and took a, a team assault team, um, and it was amazing. So you got
0: a form of redemption. I mean, you go back in the yeah. prime of the GWAT and, yeah. and get to run a team. Yeah. Was that the pinnacle of your unit career?
2: Definitely. Yeah. I had the team that I had at that time. They were just animals, um, and this is oh seven, oh eight timeframe. Yep, oh um, eight, um, yeah. To my last rotation was two thousand ten, I believe. I'd have to look at the yeah. paperwork. But uh, but I, I was I was so immersed into training when I was in recce. When I came over to the the back to the assault team, I just carried that right back over there with them. Awesome. And in the team, um, we just. We just trained we just trained hard, we worked out together. Um, one, one little story is um, we just brought in um, the unit strength coach. They remember when they brought all those guys I in remember that. it was yeah. new and um,
0: strength and conditioning yeah. program now.
2: So work call there is eight o'clock, right I sat my team down and I was like, hey guys we're gonna try this for three months. Work call six o'clock in the morning. We're going to use this strength coach. Now with that, we're going to get off earlier, but we're going to start our day earlier. Um, I had one guy on the team who was like, you know, pissy pants about the whole thing. Um, So we're doing this. Team's coming in. We're working out together, which I love, right? Um, We're doing this for about two months. And then we go out to New Mexico training up for Afghanistan. And my team takes point leading the troop up this mountain, and we're running up this mountain. Like teams, troops, sergeant majors calling, stop, slow down. We're like, hey, send your equipment up here. We'll carry it. The team is just in phenomenal shape, that and it was amazing. Um, and then when we got back, people are like, what? And then people started using that more and more and more. And I'm a real, real big um, – I just – I wish we had that when I was – 24, 25 years old because I probably wouldn't hurt as bad in the morning yeah. because the look of the type of strength conditioning that we did um, got a lot smarter, got a lot smarter. The You know, Wednesdays doing uh, rehab and doing the cold plunge and rolling and trigger points and, and actually taking care of your body is just as important as, you know, destroying your body. Um, it made a big difference on the team. And so it was great. Everything was going great. Um, did a really cool rotation overseas. Was it Afghanistan, that first rotation that you did? Um, no, the first rotation was Iraq with them, which was great. It was it was amazing. We were, we were there. Um, Troop Sergeant Major has to go home because um, he's getting ready to have his, his second child. So he's going home to for the birth of his boy. Um and then the other team leader happened to get hurt, um, which put me in charge. Mm. Which we were doing nighttime stuff, and at the time everyone was uh, doing the shell game at night, so targets were kind of slim. Yeah, and I was, and I already talked to the unit or the squadron CSM about this, and he's like, "We'll fix it." So at the whole time this was going on, I had purchased some vehicles and and talked to the intel guys with my team, and we developed some, some targets. So when I got put in charge, I went to the commander, who was a SEAL, who we were working for, um, great guy named Matt, and um, I pitched him what I wanted to do. And it was basically three or four dudes in plain clothes, roll, doing trunk monkey, like rolling up on dudes and putting them in the trunk in the daytime. We had we had a troop off around the corner type of stuff. I
1: don't want to get Trunk Monkey fixes yeah. things. You guys broke shit. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um so I had five five guys targeted and 6 days we rolled all of them up without a shot fired. Really? And that's and that and that's the cool shit to me. Gunfights and, you know, that's that's part of the job, but when you can plan an op and no one shoots a gun because you have element of surprise, violence of action. And you get the dude you're after. And you get the dude you're after. That's pretty badass. That's awesome. No one else is doing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the middle of the day, you know, holding hands with some dude with a leather jacket on, yeah. it, pointy leather shoes, very Euro, you know, and putting dudes in the trunk because you couldn't get them at night because they were playing the shell game running around. yeah. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, no unit in the world could adapt and get that approved the way. I mean, where you just get a head nod. You're like, "Roger, execute." As yep. opposed to a fifty-page conop and then redundant systems of command. It's insane. It's yeah. It, it was that was the greatest part of that organization, right? Because you you had the ability to be creative, and then just use your imagination to create a way to fit in. How was your first rotation in Afghanistan with the guys?
2: Um, my first rotation in Afghanistan, I came two weeks late. I had gone through a divorce. Um, so with that, I had custody of my son who was 10 at the time, Zachary. Um, I, I have no idea what number of rotation this is, you know, yeah. um, 11, 10, 11 round there. And I went to the command and I asked, and I was a team leader. And I asked um, the command, could I come on the second bird? Because this is the first time I get custody of my son. I wanted to show him that I was committed to him. Um, So, and, and of course they supported me, right? They're like, yeah, no problem. You know, your two IC were on the team. Um, and I uh, I showed up a couple weeks later. But when they got over to Afghanistan, um, we had some so blue on blue. We had a guy who was sick and we didn't know it. And... Um, one an, an operator was sh- was killed um on target and um I, one of my team members were involved in that and if i was there um things would have been different i think i still wrestle with that
1: you know and you missed that because you came over late yeah yeah so we talked about this a while back i'm going to give you a breather for a second thanks <laughs> yeah We, uh, Mike, you and I talked about this yeah. and one of my biggest struggles was missing a rotation, regardless of the reasons or everybody agreeing to it or whatever, missing a rotation when, you know, teammates were killed and, and, and good friends were killed and and teammates were shot and so on and so forth. And that, that fricking emptiness that comes with that. So I did my podcast with you and Lee and I have never talked about this stuff and he listened to it and the next day came in to talk to me about it and it had this huge impact on him. And it was stories that he and I had never shared. Right. Like we just reconnected this, this past year after a pretty substantial break.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, even though we'd known each other for 20 years, but, uh, I didn't understand why my words affected him so much. And then we talked it out and he was like, no man, like I, I, the exact same thing happened to me this year when that happened in this thing. And, you know, when Jared was killed and I I can't help but thinking if I was there, what could I have changed that outcome? So, yeah, um, I was in the the building at the time. I was with
0: A1 on that first rotation and then I came back and that happened. I remember that happened. And then I think I ran into Chris later on um, that was there when it happened and we had a little small conversation about it, but yeah. So, what do you think would have changed potentially if you were there?
2: Um, just little things. I mean, people would have been in different places on the ground. Um,
0: because you were, you would have been in charge of one of the teams yeah. that were in the middle of that,
2: right? Yeah. So I could have. I mean, I mean, you can what if things to death, mm. and. But I, I do know that when I'm on the battlefield, that I do affect the battlefield, right? And as a team leader, you definitely affect movement, you know. Um, yeah, you dictate movement. You dictate
0: right? movement, yeah. The, 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 and just is for people who were just kind of trying to get an understanding of this. When I was there, you know, I had like Jamie C. You know, he was one of the team leaders that was there. Rabbit, I think, was another one. But... Team leaders in the unit are gods. They, they literally dict... I mean, the, the troop, a good aren't major will say, hey, what do you guys want to do? And then the senior TL will say, I'm doing this. And then everybody says, I'm doing this. But it's like you could dictate your actions and movement. You control the chemistry of the behavior on the objective. Yeah. And I've never... Man, sitting in a, a, a troop, you know, T, TL meet or brief, it's just f- so fluid and so... because you know the TL at the tip of the spear, at that level of experience, has done that mission, that role, a thousand times. Yeah,
1: you might get told you're going to do something, but how you're going to do it is absolutely up yeah. to those dudes. Yeah.
0: yeah, which is, and I could see where you come, where you're coming from, uh, from that perspective. Um, what's your biggest regret in that circumstance? Just not being there to affect maybe some change.
2: <sighs> I don't think I have any regret. I think I made the right decision um, for Zachary. Um, Probably the first time that I really put my family before the unit. Um, Would I do it different? I would like to say yes, just because there's lives on the line. Um, I, I just know if I was there, it would be different and i and uh, i just i just miss those guys so much yeah it and it it can tear a troop apart did it it did it did you know people want to blame people you know um Luckily, we had some leadership in place that had had a lot of compassion. So we got the person some help, and he's doing great. Um, but that could have went very easily a different way. Yeah. You know? People, some people want to crucify the guy. Yeah.
1: But... Well, and, and I'm not getting into it. It wasn't my squadron. I wasn't there. But I do know all the personalities involved. Yeah. Both the the individual that that made the mistake and the individual that died and I know the backside of the individual that made the mistake and I also know that he said before that rotation that he wasn't feeling right and wasn't sure if he wanted to deploy this time um and every operator struggles with that at some point yep. you, you you have that lapse where like you and I talked about it Mike and then and then you put your game face on, you go down range. The first time the Bulls go down range, you're back on, and you forget about it. Yeah. But, but you know, those things occurred, and those are lessons learned. I don't know that anything anybody would have done or could have done would have changed. Yeah. No, but. I
2: mean, maybe, that, that, maybe that's where I made my mistake, you know? Maybe that's – because he was my 2IC, and as his leader, I should have saw that. Yeah. But we trained hard every day, and – the difference was I was training so we could go after the enemy. He was training because he thought people were after him. It's a different mindset.
0: Very yeah. much. You know? And I remember this is during my CIF rotation. He was with us on the, another roll. And he, that, after that rotation, when I left. I found out he got blown up and in a serious explosion with a, a suicide vest. Um, working uh, just another role and when that happened i even thought when i heard about it talking with some guys and being like man what if that was like traumatic brain injury what if there's like because there's a lot of things that people don't understand about tbi that we're just discovering now <laughs> which is you know it's like like me and the guys here you know me and kevin have been in a lot of gunfights blowing up a lot of shit and just our brains rattled, and there's so much deficiency. Like I can't even remember. Like it's hard for me to even. Like I'll take a note, and they won't remember where I took the note at. Right. So there's there's psychological effects, but there's also physiological effects that we can't control that control the psyche in a lot of ways. So, and I'm not making uh, light or excuse. I'm just saying that, dude, when you go to war for how many years that you guys were war fighting and you're getting blown the fuck up, shot in the chest, point blank range, doing what you do, there are gonna be adverse effects and nobody in the history of time could tell you what that looked like 10 years down the fucking road.
2: It's even harder to recognize when you're in that environment because because you are are training at a point where everything's muscle memory. So everything's fairly easy, right? Muscle memory, shooting, everyday life. When you take yourself out of that environment. So I went, it was an instructor there, and then I went up to DC and I represented the command um, to the director. That's when I really felt things weren't right. Um, like you said, taking notes and not even remember where your notebook is. Um, I was briefing um, General Mahalan on an operation and I was like, hey sir, they're going to do... Uh, an infill 139 kilometers. Hmm. I was like 139 kilometers, sir. <laughs> right. No matter how many he's times like, I say it, it won't come a out new right. Me- <laughs> yeah. In my head, Measure? I I'm like kilometers, but coming out, I could physically could not say it. And I'm like 139 k, sir. And he's like, "You're good, Lee. Keep on going." And I'm like,
1: "What the fuck?" <laughs> let, let me let me orientate you um, to my words. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and um. And that's. And I just thought, okay, yeah, big deal. That happens to me sometimes. We get tongue-tied, but then the unit would send up a psych to come talk to me once a month. I mean, if you need to, if you work in DC, you need a psych anyways. But yeah, um, just kind of check on me, what's going on. And I told him what was going on, and he's like, "How often does this happen? This might not be tongue-tied." Um, and I was having issues. You know, I was drinking. You know. Good whiskey every night. Um, And and it really started coming out of me, angry all the time, um, irritable. I could hold it together long enough at work and then afterwards it would be, you know, rough. Um, The only thing that kept me in the fight up there, being by myself, literally you feel by yourself when you're not with, you know, like-minded people, you know, like... Now I go to work at TIER and I have... Chris, I know Chris is there. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> um, the only thing that kept me saying there was the job I was doing, the commanders I worked for, um, they made me part of their command team. And they made me feel like what I was doing was really important. You had a sense of purpose. I had right? a sense of purpose. Yeah. And though I know I only, saw, I only had a couple pieces of the puzzle... I could carry those pieces and give them to the commander, so the commander could make good decisions, right? Um, and that's another place where we fell we fall short uh, at the NCOs. The NCOs were they saw me up there as you know drinking coffee at Starbucks, but I was I was you know getting good information and representing the command and and influencing decisions at a national level. Um. And it felt good. You know, it felt good. Okay, I I know I my body hurts. I've had ankle surgery, two knee surgery, shoulder surgery, my head hurts, but I I can change and not use my body and I can start using my mind more. Yeah. Um and and I grew a lot as an operator when I was up there. And I learned a lot more about DC and how decisions are made and and how to help, you know. Which is rare
0: because in the unit, there's only a few of those positions that could groom you for that kind of understanding,
2: right? Well, that position was held by a lieutenant colonel before that. And I they, they call it an LNO position. And then I turned it into a representation, right? Yeah. I represented the command. I didn't just LO I went to meetings um, and represented the command. And
0: you were Sergeant Major at the time. Yeah. Let me let me backtrack just a little bit to that instance in Afghanistan. Because I want to ask you as a leader, somebody who has a lot of experience leading men in special operations, especially in combat. How did you tactfully and tactically kind of approach that circumstance? Like, when did you find out? And then did you create a plan in order to keep your guys together? Because I imagine with that kind of thing happening and then the disruption it causes when you're in a war zone where you have to be focused on the, on the
2: job that there, that is going to bring some leadership challenges. Yeah. Well, one, you have your team room, right? And my first team leader, I talked about him earlier, Eddie. He's, he told me, Lee, you can say anything you want in this team room. Okay. I won't hold it against you. We can talk about it. Um, But once you go out the door, and go out to the bay and talk, then you're responsible for that. And, you know, you have to, you'll live that. And and I, and I always thought I lived by that. So when I was a team leader, I let my guys in the team room say and do anything they wanted. So I could hear it and they could vent and I could help them, you know, like give them different, just a different perspective. Um, cry, you know. It's, it's like the a a safe place. Hold someone, yeah, you know. A safe place. Two grown men, you know, crying and giving each other a hug is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, loss hurts. You know, and it's it's different than when you lose a buddy or an operator to the enemy. I'm 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 going after the enemy just like they're coming after me. So and you do and you do it.
1: I think we, not to jump in, but I I think that is always better with us because we all know that that's a possibility, right? Like, you know, when you go out on a hit, you might not come back. And we all in our own ways figure out how to deal with that. And you know that that dude that you lost knew that going out the door. So it's almost, I don't know, not to harken back to the olden days, but it's an honorable way to go out, man. Yeah. And there's a level of respect that comes with that that almost makes us feel a little bit better that a guy died doing what he was born to do.
2: Yep. I I couldn't say it any better.
1: That's exactly how
2: I feel. That's how I, I can deal with... Um, you know, every rotation you lose someone, it seems like. Every rotation someone either is seriously maimed or multiple guys get killed. And when you lose someone to the enemy, I mean it's okay. That's what we're doing. We're taking their lives too. Um, but when you lose someone to, you know, friendly fire could be from some young 19 year old from the 82nd who sees you dressed up and fills you in, which has happened.
0: We lost a guy on a task force hit, uh, Tung Nguyen. Uh, yeah, I know. He, he was in B2-3 yeah. with me. And me and Kevin were downrange in B-2-3 when this happened. And I think the Brits were doing a hit, a joint hit. And then he threw a nine-banger in the courtyard. And Big Army was driving by on the road and opened fire. Death blossomed because they thought they were receiving incoming fire. And he got hit in the head with a 50-cal and killed him. Yeah, that shit happens, though, right, in the fog of war. and uh, Yeah. yeah and we try down. to
2: mitigate risk as much as possible. We, we, we talked to... The uh, the commanders who own that battle space. We send pictures, hey, this is what we're gonna be driving, this is what we're gonna be wearing, you know, brief yeah. your guy. But they're just they're young kids. Yeah. You, you guys know? were
0: there for that when that happened, right? Yeah, so, we were C was there, yeah. That was us, yeah. yeah. We were there with you guys yep. during that happen.
1: And Tongue was, he was the, he was the ops sergeant when I went through the Q course. So the, what, that, yeah, whatever that you call echo. him. Yeah. 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 The yeah. guy that like runs the, w- at yeah. the schoolhouse there. Yeah. He was always super good to me, man. We barely knew each other, but other than yeah. that, but. Remember but,
0: the yeah. mortar round? I don't know if you guys were out in the the formation at the MSS when the, took incoming round while the whole task force was on the, the, uh, the flight line for Tongue's memorial. I was mm. like, "Fuck, that's bad timing, man." Yep. Um, so you 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 literally show up, and what are your kind of first actions? Do you go into like a deliberate planning mode because you know you have to retain this, or do you kind of just go with the flow and see what's going on?
2: Um, business as usual. Um, kind of get a brief from the team, what's going on, how everyone's doing. Talk to the other team leaders. Talk to the troops. Sergeant Major. Look at the, talk to the intel guy. Um. Were you were you able to liaison something
0: because you were on the you were back home and then you heard about it and then able to do anything or did you
2: just pop smoke and head overseas I had to clear VA hmm. so I had to go through all of this stuff and turn him into CIF and I yeah. took care of all that before I headed headed over wow
0: wow well, how did the guys continue to operate in that environment because Afghanistan I, that first rotation with a it was insane we were there getting some gun fight, serious gunfights that yeah be, could, I was in Kunduz at the time, but they weren't ready for us. I mean, it was insane. We were doing MI-17 shit. It was crazy. I was like, where the fuck am I right now? I'm like washing my ass with a water bottle in the middle of the, middle of the desert. I'm like, what the fuck
2: is going on? Um, um, well, we were doing ops every night. We that, And then later on, that that same rotation is when Rabbit got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, we got ambushed going on to a follow-on target. Um so I mean, we were still giving it to the enemy. I mean, you know, you got to give it to the guys. I mean, it's it like I said, it's about the mission. Yeah, and that's what we did. Um, you know, off duty time or however you want to talk about that, uh, you had some personalities, um, some drama there. You had to manage, um, but uh, for the most part, guys were still focused on getting after the enemy. Is that problematic in the
0: feeling that? You can't mourn because you don't have time because you're operating. And then you suppress it. I had that conversation with Tom Satterley, where you know he told me he had started accumulating when he lost his first teammate in Mogadishu. And then he never was able to mourn for anybody because he didn't have time, which i I can get that sense, right? You just don't have time to do it because there's no you're not allowing yourself the time. Right. and then after it's all said and done when the fuck do you do that like when is the time for you to step back because I imagine none of those guys had the opportunity to reflect on anything and now it's catching up because now we're actually left alone with our own voice in our head and we don't have anything to fill that void
2: well the only time I really had time to mourn is C Squadron Lost Mac, who went to OTC with us, and I had to pull guard on his casket. Hmm. Hardest thing I've ever done. Watching his boys, his family walk up to the casket and stand there in the position of attention. And
0: this this is at JFK Chapel in on Bragg, or is this? Yeah, the, okay. exactly. Um,
1: it hurts. Um, yeah. And that's the, he's talking about Mike McNulty, who yeah, was yeah. my best friend that lost on the rotation that I missed. Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't know that you were on the backside of that till right now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you were actually pulling the, like the detail to pay the respects. In. Right.
2: So the guys in, in my squadron, you, you don't get that, right? You have to do that when you come home. Um, And when you come home, what's your number one priority? Taking care of your family. Oh, wait, training. We got to get ready for this. We got these boxes we got to check, right? You kind of go into this. It never really happened, Um, at least for me. That's how I kind of treated it. It was like, okay, I'm either husband, father over here, or I'm an operator here. And it was literally my drive to work. It was my switch to gears or driving home was, you know, when I was at work, it was work. When I was home, it was home. Um, and that's what I tried to focus on.
0: Did you, get a, did you do a good job of looking back at uh, your personal life, at creating the separation between work and
2: home? Do you think
0: you could have done better?
2: I definitely could have done better. Um, my son's mother, um, after I got shot the first time on my first rotation, she didn't want to have anything to do or, or hear about what i did at work so it made it easier before that or after the- after well wow. so there was a very very clear separation of church and state
1: meaning like for her own yeah. mental yeah. yeah i couldn't blame her yeah. I mean, yeah
2: she just didn't want to hear about. She, it. nope i don't want to know that you're jumping out of hair uh, you know helicopters or airplanes i don't i don't care about what happened on the range what was funny you know she wanted the division yeah. between that. How did that grossly
0: affect uh, your work or at all? Did you just flip the switch because you you knew the dividing line or were you contemplating? I know some guys beat themselves up because of the guilt they feel, but it's only after the fact because um, they don't want to disrupt what they have going on at work because you know those hesitations could get you killed. Were you having a hard time? at some point in your career managing both work and home?
2: Um, I think the biggest thing that I I missed out on with that was there's a, you know, it, guys kind of group together, like, you know, hey, these guys get along and they go and um, hang out at the pool and their wives get along and their kids play and they have that little, the, the sense of community. Um, I never had any of that because, my wife didn't hang out or want to hang out with other wives and kids and stuff. So, I was—it was clear separation. Um, I didn't hang out with the guys on the weekend, type of thing. Was that good or bad? Do you think? Um, I think it was. I'm, I'm sure there's pros and cons, but I, looking back at it, I, I think I missed out on um, building some better relationships, that more meaning relationships than just. Relationships on the battlefield or at work. I, I Remember talking to
0: Chris about this and we had discussed like when you when you're with guys and you're building relationships There's a risk of losing those guys those men. So there's a there's almost like a, a line that you draw on your own and How close you get to people at the unit because the next day they could not be there. And then and you're having to deal with that with their spouse or manage that, that uh, difficulty. Did you have a wall built up?
2: I think naturally because of my personal situation at home, it built that wall for me. I, didn't, I don't think I did it consciously.
0: Yeah. What's the toughest thing in your experience with being in that career field in special operations
2: for so long? Getting out of it. Leaving it, right? Leaving it. Leaving the mission, leaving the men, losing that, you when, know?
0: When you talk me through the last day at the unit and you're retiring or leaving, how was that
2: for you? Um, maybe not my last day, but my retirement party. Mm-hmm. Um, had a pretty good showing at the unit. And then I had a party off-site. Um, but there happened to be a mission that was going on that night, so a lot of the command um, couldn't come to the party <laughs> because they're still working. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my got a lot of my buddies were deployed, so it's just kind of timing, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was just short lived. It happens yeah. fast. It's yeah. You just get off the train, you know. It's, the train keeps on moving. When you left the military.
0: You had the opportunity to liaison at the position that you talked about with yeah. in DC, and I almost feel like that's kind of like a step in transition to the next phase, which is being a civilian.
2: That's how it, that's how I try to treat it. Yeah. Um, when I volunteered to go do that job, I was like, well, <clears throat> I looked at it as, can I go do this long term? You know, like, can I go wear a tie and and answer emails every day and go to meetings. And if I failed at this, no operator would have held it against me. You know what I mean? They would have welcomed me back. I would have taken a troop. They would have said, yeah, man, that sucks. Yeah, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was it was a really good safety net in that aspect. Um, but it was also a really good environment for me to develop some soft skills, which I had to, to do really quickly. Um, When I was up there, there was um, an 05 um, SEAL, um, Chris, great officer. And he was up there before I was, and he was representing his command. Um, And he took me under his wing, and he's like, he he helped me. He coached and mentored me um, and helped me from breaking stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I I really appreciated that. People don't always do that, you know. People watch people fail, and they just they just watch it happen. Yeah. And it's it's unfortunate, but. So you were set up for
0: success in a way. How did that transition or translate to the transition
2: to getting out and then stepping away for good? Right. So one after working up in D.C., it solidified that I didn't want to work there. Um, Very young in my career, I knew that I wouldn't go to combat unless I was with the unit. Um, Just being on the battlefield and seeing all the different units and all the different organizations, I knew I didn't want to be part of anything overseas where I was risking my life um, without, you know. That level of dude next to you. Yeah. I, I knew that. I knew that from being on the battlefield and seeing it and going out with other units. And then being up there, I knew I didn't want to be part of that culture because that's it. they got their own problems. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. It's yeah. very toxic. Um, so so that's, it, it kind of solidified that decision. Lee, you're going to go out and you're going to not carry a gun and you're going to go do something. Um, and I went and I worked for Hewlett Packard Enterprise out of, in Texas. How
0: was that experience did you have lapses or hiccups along yeah. the way?
2: Well, one, luckily, um, I met a guy named Brian Corona, who's a, who's a great dude. He's, he's you know, pro vet, never served, but, you know, respects us. And he when he met me, he realized, he's like, you're different, you know. You look at problems different. Um, he's like, I got a job for you. And he was trying to develop a small team to help the sales executives go after new logos or new new accounts, right? Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, they they've made a lot of money on landing accounts and just they call it farming. They farm that account. But the way technology in the industry is now, smaller companies can come in, you know, and and pick that apart. So they needed new logos. So he was putting together this team um, and, and I worked with two other vets. He, br- he brought in two intel guys, two marine intel guys, um, the officers, um, and it was tough. And, and basically we built a target packet, you know, after the F3EA model, mm-hmm. find, fix, finish, exploit, and analyze. And it was very successful for the sales except because we were make, basically making target packets on companies and then people in those companies who made decisions. And then we'd tee it up. But I had a really tough time working with the other vets. Um, very conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not conventional. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had masters in business. I don't have a masters in business. Um, so they looked down on me. They were both officers. They looked down on me um, and they were very, very frank about it. So though we were all vets and on the same team, They were very individual and they were more worried about their career than the mission, which that's what I've always focused on was the mission. So that's what I did when I got there. I was like, hey, this is our mission. Let's build this program out. And they were more worried about their careers. Um, And then we were there, we built that out across nine different industries. um, And then they sold part of the company. And the guy I worked for left. And then everyone else left and i stood there i'm like well, where's the loyalty in this place right yeah that's that's the civilian world
0: yeah all right so before the tear tactical thing you had done you did uh protection for a period of time right? yeah
2: i did that for a short period of time and then i did um i i went to i went and lived in venice california with uh well i ended up marrying her um and it was really rough. We were an entrepreneur, starting our own company. Um, uh, it was, it was, it was probably the worst scenario to set up for someone who's getting out of the unit. Mm-hmm. I had drifted away from the tribe, so I wasn't talking to anyone. Um, and I took. You know, financially, I was invested in this company, and um, madly in love. Yeah. <laughs> and um, things were just—I didn't have anyone to talk to, uh, the company and the civilians, and and I was trying to put it, TTPs in place. And you know, as we grow and scale, um, and then um, about seven months ago. Um my stepson committed suicide. Fuck. And and um I was having a really hard time transitioning and I wasn't talking to anyone. Um so before right before that, I um I checked myself in the hospital. Yeah. Um, I wasn't suicidal at all. I just had some issues, and I didn't know how to deal with them. And I had this this feeling inside of me of just just go live in the mountains, you know? Yeah. Um, That's what we all want to do, right? Just right? Get the fuck away. Just, Stop being just,
0: what we feel is liabilities, and just get the fuck away. Yeah.
2: So. I checked myself in the hospital, and I and I spent a few weeks at a residential facility, and and I took classes and I learned some some grounding techniques and and learned a lot about myself. Um, and then my my wife called me and, and told me that Noah committed suicide while you're in the hospital. While I was in the hospital, Fuck. so I checked out that night because I was there voluntarily, and I checked out and flew back, and. Um, So I took care of her, the, you know, I was, I was in a, I was in a, in, in operation mode. Uh, so the first three weeks back, I was taking care of her, trying to take care of everything and and everything. I mean, for the situation, you know, it was, it was okay. Um, and then I started falling apart again. So I had to, um, we, we needed to, we needed to separate and we're still separated, um, to take, I couldn't take care of her because I couldn't take care of myself. And this is one part where I really learned that I can't do everything. Before, when I was in the unit and you have all these guys and all this support around you and, and the mission comes down and they say, hey, here's the mission. You're like, yep, we can do that. What's it going to cost? Didn't yeah. matter
1: what it was. Didn't, didn't matter. I know we'll get this done. Yep.
2: I can come up with three good courses of action. We might have to change policy to do it, but we can fucking get it done. Um, and this is when I finally realized that, you know, I can't do everything. That I do need a team. There's some things that I'm really good at and I can handle stress-wise. I would rather be in a firefight, you know, than arguing with someone. Um, I don't. I don't do confrontation. You know, I'm in Venice Beach, California, and I fucking go ride my bicycle because PT is very important, you know, right? And I ride seven miles to the mountain, change my shoes, run up the mountain, come back down, and there's a guy stealing my bicycle. He's like taking off with my bicycle. I catch him, and I get my bicycle back in not a healthy way. Um, so I was I was hurting. I didn't I didn't know what I needed. Now that I'm I'm by myself and I'm out, I know that I have to have a good foundation and I have to have a good team and I have to have someone to talk to and people around and and I and I'm really working on reaching out and and making phone calls to the guys that I care about, you know, like Joel K. Eddie, and I go to work with Chris. <clears throat> so, I mean, that put me that put me in Vegas. Didn't have a job, but I knew I needed to be by myself. I was in Vegas. It was January. Shot show happens, um, and I know I need to be part of something. I'm not part of anything. Um, so I was like, well, it's a really good time to connect with the guys and see what's out there. And I met
1: Aloysius. Mm-hmm. Wish Donovan. Yep. He works for FN now, but used to work for TierTarticle. Yeah, I know yeah. him really well. Yeah, uh, good Everyone
2: good. does except me. Like, <laughs> I met him there, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah.
1: right? But um, you fell in love with him right away. Right. Oh, yeah, big yeah. teddy
2: bear. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, hey, uh you want to go to the tier tactical party? And I'm like, I'm hanging out with a bunch of squadron guys. Like who's going to be there? <laughs> you know? And he's like, uh, well, Jason, Chris Van Zant. I'm like, Chris Van Zandt's going to be there. Yes. Let's go. So we headed over. I followed him over there.
1: Um, wish sent me a text and said, um, Hey, I'm coming up. What's the sweet number. And party's a loose term. We do like a, we do yeah. a get together where we do yeah. some food and some drinks, and 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 honestly, all the years we've been doing shot show, people tend to come to us first and hang out and talk yeah. for a while, and then they go on to crazier Vegas stuff. Yeah, it's right? a grown up get
2: together. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool, food. <laughs> and we
1: get a really good turnout, and it, and it's some of its customers and some of its friends and 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 whatnot. But it's a, but it's a good turnout. So, Wish sent me a text and said, "Hey, um, what's the sweet number?" And I told him, and he said, "I'm bringing some friends." which it's Wish. It's a guy that I've known forever and I love. and and um, So, of course, I was like, yeah, man, cool, man. All right, I'll see you in a bit. And I, I go back to my business. So so uh, we go up there
2: and we open the door and Chris is standing like right there. He turns, we make eye contact, and he's like, brother, you know, big hug. I haven't seen him in, f- I can't even remember the last time.
1: Yeah, so the funny thing was um, when you're... Well, when you're us, right, and you've been at the peak of of strength and success, um, but you've also been at the bottom, you know just by somebody's body language and their fucking aura, man, that it's heavy. And I felt it. I it's, felt it the moment he walked in the door and I hugged him. I felt his weight.
2: I remember that hug.
1: and I And I knew it. I knew he knew it, and I knew it, and it was the craziest thing. It was like, he like leaned on me, and I was like, I, I got you, bro. Fuck. Wow. That's and amazing. It was, it, was a, it was a really, for both of us, a powerful moment.
0: What was the, um, Lee, from your perspective, is it, <clears throat> did it bring you closer to a place where you felt like it was home? the familiarity.
2: That's a good way to put it, right? So I was out there in the world, yeah. right? Feeling like I don't fit in anywhere. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. I can I can walk the walk. I can go into any type of group of people and have a conversation. Yeah. That's not a problem. But actually feel like you belong somewhere?
0: Yeah. You you're know? just pretending at that point. Yeah
2: you're, just, yeah, you're just you're just you're just making it work. And then like, when I hugged Chris, I remember them. And driving up here, I was thinking about it. I was like, it felt like I belong. Like, I had a friend. You know, and I haven't... Yeah. I hadn't been talking to the guys at all.
0: Why do we self-isolate? What is that a... I feel like it's a, a primal... I don't know. It's a primal instinct, right? We When we go I, off and die somewhere by ourselves.
2: I think a lot of it has to do with... You're you're told your whole career You are the best You can do anything you want You do anything you put your mind to Alright now You're getting out of the service You can do anything you want Go out there and make a lot of money Because that's what everybody talks about Right? And you're like Oh if I don't do that Then I'm disappointing people I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing So if you're not Doing exactly a good job Or what people expect you to do You kind of just isolate You're like Oh, I'll report in when I'm doing better. I don't want to. I'm only going to talk to you if I'm like, hey, how's the family doing? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing this. I got a new truck. I'm doing You know, I don't want to call you and say and you say, hey, Lee, how you doing? Shitty, man. You know, I haven't slept in three days. I lost 40 pounds because I'm not eating. You know, we don't that's not how we don't put our burden on other people. We don't. You know, what what is it about?
0: leaving that tribe and going off on your own, what's so uh, detrimental to our mental and physical health? Why does that happen to all of us? What, what, what do you think that is?
2: Well, there's not a lot of guys who leave that, let's be honest. A lot of guys don't. They get out and they go do GB or they go, they're instructors.
1: Yeah, Mike, your words are chase the rainbow, right? <laughs> chase the yeah. rainbow, Holding right? on. Yeah. And and
2: I saw, when I worked at the agency, I saw guys who were senior when I got, like, retiring when I got to the unit, coming down the hallway. And they were, they looked old. Like, gunfighting's a young man's sport. You know, I can't believe you guys are still doing this. And, and I didn't want that. And I know we're capable of doing so much more. Um, and there's not a lot of guys who who branch out and totally get away from the industry totally get away you know like hpe um officers do it better right they have connections they have educations they have you know a lot of different but,
1: avenues but their service career they're it's it, it's drive-bys they, yes they touch on a little things along the way they're not they're not head and shoulders deep in a culture and an environment for an extended period of time. It's a different animal. I, th- I think that's why they are more effective at that transition piece than, than enlisted folks. Mm-hmm. We live in the trenches for a long time, and that's what we know that culture is, who we are down to our fibers. And then it's gone.
2: Yeah. You, I went from Sergeant Major Busby briefing the director
1: twice a week. Of the agency. To Lee. All right? The veteran. Yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> what a great label. I don't mean right? that as a negative term. Yeah. I, I, it's just a blanket for you're now part, you're now lumped with everybody else. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that was part of the problem at HP when I worked with other veterans. They're like, well, this is how we do it. And I'm like, that's not how I do it. Where the fuck you come from? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and... and and you, I don't know if you said it. You might have said it. It was on one of your your uh, your strings. It might have been it might have been Tyler who said it. I think it was, and he said it very well. Let's stop looking at the differences, because when you start looking, yeah. you, you remember yeah, that was him, yeah. That was him, right? Yeah. And I thought he said it so well. Like when you start looking at veterans and you start comparing your military career and my military career, they're they're so different. So why are we doing that? Yeah, you know what I mean. Because we have so much in common. Because we do have so much in common, but but we have different experiences, and that's okay. Yeah, you know. And I thought, and and it, it was like four lines the way he put it, and I just I just thought it was very good.
0: When when you think this is something me and Chris had hashed out, but I it, I still get anxiety about it because you have a entire tribe of men who are still war fighting some some of them your peers still that are still there that are yep. still doing the work the job and then they get out and they the door slams behind them and then the machine continues to roll and they have to figure out on their own how to make do there's no mechanisms no support there's there's little and this is kind of a journey that we've all been through but it almost seems like nothing changes right cuz it's all the same stories, right? We're lucky because we're the ones that are still alive because we have many friends that have taken their own lives. And if you were to give those guys advice, knowing what you know now, and you're just figuring it out like I am, we're, we're still in processes of figuring it out. Who knows when everything will just be normal, if it ever will be. What advice would you give them?
2: Oh my God. That's like asking me how a watch works. You know what I mean? Um, it's okay to leave your geographical space. A lot of guys, and that's it's part of one of the things that makes the unit great is so I, I was in the unit for 15 years, right? Um, luckily, my last four years I had duty at, so I actually moved to Virginia. Um, but guys are there for longer than me and they put this taproot down in the ground and their kids grow up there. Some of them move the rest of their family there. Right. And then when you get out, the only thing you have, if you're going to, because everyone wants to stay there because, well, my, my kids are still in high school. They got to finish high school. It's, it's okay. Um, look big, you know, look across the country. It's okay to move away from that place. You think it's healthy? I think it's more healthy to move away mm-hmm. and, so and learn right. who you really are. Yeah. And Force be yourself. able to be yourself because mm-hmm. you've you've been put in this role where you had to be an operator. There's certain things there that you can and can't do. And we suppress things about ourselves there. Well, go go be yourself, you know you you're great you're smart cognitive thought process crazy fast right go and and it can still be part of the industry if that's what you want to do it can still be part of guns or training or whatever but go and be part of a community when i came up to your uh um your event uh rigs and coffee mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i i felt good because i i saw you connecting with the community mm-hmm. which i've never had you know I've never had that. And I think we, people in general, need to be part of something. And, and we're good at it. I think you
0: you're know? spot on. I, I wish more guys would look at themselves for not their technical skill sets, but their, like you said, cognitive and maybe leadership experience and what they could do. They could be executives. They could be entrepreneurs. They could run nonprofits. They are the future leaders of the world. They don't have to be just NCOs, and that's the limit of their experience in they, moving into the civilian society. They could be such assets for their own community and whatever capacity that is. Yeah. But I, 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 almost hurts my. It almost hurts me when I see guys accept that they're going to go to GB and. And spend 20 more years in a toxic environment, fighting, chasing the rainbow, coming home disappointed, broken relationships, that whole cycle again, and then just die and wither away, continuing to fight when they don't need to. Like they could make a more, uh, a broader impact on their communities or their family or their friends just by doing what they do in civilian life. Once you get through that little hump, you start to realize, like, well, fuck, I can do this. Right, because it's it's difficult.
2: There's a little bit of, you know, you gotta be humble. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna you're not gonna leave the 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 tip of the spear, as we said earlier, and expect to be, hey, I'm the executive of some company. I mean, there is a transition period. It mm-hmm. takes ten minutes to dress like a commando, it takes ten years to become one, right? We all have heard that. And I believe that. And but I do believe that the quality of guys come out of there. It doesn't take 10 years. You know, there you got a caliber of guys who you show them how to do something and they can do it. Mm-hmm. You show them twice, they'll do it better than you. Yeah. I mean, that's the caliber of people that are are there that you're working with. I, which which is a detriment to when you leave, right? Because now you're not surrounded by a bunch of guys who can do things, think the way you think, and you have to learn how to lead in a different environment. You yeah, have to work yeah. on those soft skills and understand about yourself that, hey, I got some stuff to work on myself. Yeah. Like me, I'm working on compassion. Compassion for other people and compassion for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we're harder on ourselves than anyone else. When I made a mistake on target or training, my team leader couldn't beat me up more than I can beat myself up. Mm-hmm. Which is, it makes his job easier, really, right? Having compassion for someone who comes to work late Having compassion for someone. Other things are going on in people's lives. Yeah. And, and we tend to turn that compassion dial, is how I look at it, way down after rotation after rotation. No, you're supposed to be... Don't be late, lighter out of uniform, right? If you're doing something wrong, I'm going to tell you you're doing something wrong. Well, we don't have to live like that in the civilian world. Yeah.
0: That's not how civilians operate, right? That's just... They don't... Re- They're not really receptive to that kind of uh, process.
2: No, not at all.
0: I wish it was that easy, but it's just not how it is. I mean, if you told uh, a civilian how fucked up they are, which I do routinely, that just doesn't go over well.
2: (laughs) Right, but we adapted to a military environment when you went into the service and you kept continuing to adapt as the battlefield changed. Well, your environment changes. You're in the civilian world now. Civilian is not going to change. Yeah. We got to change for our environment and we understand that it's hard, you know, yeah. because it's, we're used to moving fast and doing things right, you know, and calling bullshit when bullshit needs to be called. But sometimes bullshit doesn't need to be called, yeah, you know, or it has to be done in a, in a, a nicer way, so to speak.
0: Chris, how have you um, managed to adapt? You know, we talked about some of your processes, but what are, do you have any tactics that you've ad- that you've gone into to show more compassion or to kind of take it down a notch to adapt?
1: Yeah, I mean, the leadership styles change, right? When you leave the service and you go to the outside world, particularly when you come from a soft environment, right? It's a very, we do an event, we talk about an event, we're very critical of that event, we make adjustments, and the next time that doesn't happen. Um, In the civilian world, it's a little more difficult than that. And you, as a service member, You're used to a lot of guys are cut from the same cloth, guys and gals, right? There's a certain set of techniques that work with different people. In the civilian world, you get all walks. Um, And somebody might have great skills or traits. They might have things that they're really good at, but they might have things that they're really bad at. And you have to learn how to look at each one of them as a different problem and figure out the correct way to interact with that person to get those good things out of them. And that's a challenge for us. Like we didn't, we, all three of us came from no fail environments where if you're lucky, you got one, okay, let's do this again, but then you're done. Yeah. And the rest of the world doesn't work like that. Um, And you definitely have to adapt to that. But like I'm, I'm a, I'm an emotional guy anyway. And then, you know, traumatic brain injury and a bunch of stuff. I'm, I'm overly empathetic at this point where I have a, Visceral reaction to someone else feeling a certain way. Mm. So I have to really pay attention to it I have to think about I have to push pause talk When I'm dealing with civilians mm. even more so than in the military I have to think about what I'm gonna say I have to think about how that's going to impact them I have to think about how that's going to impact me because they don't understand all the stuff that's going on in my head mm. um, So it's a challenge every day uh, It takes work every day but what I was gonna say to your point earlier Lee was Like, and I remind him every day, and you've heard me say this, Mike, like the stuff that made you awesome in the service is the same stuff that makes you awesome in whatever you choose to do next. Yeah. And the cool part about him, we talked about seeing each other again and feeling it, and we both knew, but he hung out the rest of the night and everybody leaves and goes their separate ways. And he just sat there and engaged with the few of us that stuck around, mostly, you know, tier folks and and Jason, who owns the company. And he got in quite a few long conversations and you know, eventually leaves and we give each other a hug and he goes on his way. And the first thing that Jason said to me was that's a brilliant dude, man. Like that guy, <clears throat> he's got a good head on his shoulders. Like, like what do you think he's doing? <laughs> like what's he up to? And that's, he knew nothing. I'd never said until that I'd never talked about Lee Busby. Lee and I've known each other for 20 years, but it'd never come up. We hadn't crossed paths. And he said that. And I was like, Yeah, he does. And in my mind I thought, I bet Lee doesn't know that right now. Like I bet Lee doesn't think that about himself right now. And then Jason was like, Where do you where do you want to go from here? Like, don't you think we should talk to him tomorrow? I said, Absolutely. And we didn't. We ended up talking that night, right? We went yeah. downstairs and eight. And and We stayed up till three in the morning talking. And I think you were surprised. Yeah. Like it but it it, it was more about Here's a guy that has a unique way of looking at the world, has a unique set of skills. He's done some things that traditional operators haven't. He stepped outside the box. He worked in DC. He put on a suit and tie and engaged at the highest levels um, and was involved in decisions for national and strategic importance on a daily basis. That's heavy, important stuff. And I'm on the other side of it going, he just forgot. He just forgot what a rock star he is like i want to i want to see what else he's got like
0: because that correlates to business success those are all the parameters and characteristics of of being successful in operations is literally the success metric that you need in business
1: like he said he spent the last 20 years where mission success was his primary focus achieving that objective that is business man that's how you're yep. successful the tactics techniques and procedures change mm-hmm. but but the ultimate goal is is that and not even me i didn't say anything the guy that owns our business saw that saw that in him immediately in 15 minutes and was like we need to keep talking to that guy and of course i loved it cuz i missed him yeah and and i knew i knew without even talking about it i knew where he was in his process because i'd been there yeah and and people picked me up and extended a hand to me. And I thought, man, I'm wrong if I don't see this and recognize this and go, hey, brother, I got you.
0: That's such a valuable uh, lesson right there, which is (laughs) we have all these guys that are getting out, and we have these responsibilities as leaders in the military. You guys were operating in special missions units at the tip of the spear, Now there is a burden of responsibility that you've accepted and taken on in helping the next wave of men who are going to need that. And I I, I hate to even say it because I, I was such a naysayer while in it, right? I'm a active duty guy. I'm not, you know, an agency I'm an agency guy and I don't give a fuck about anybody. I don't care until I realized after the door closed behind me that I was on my own and having peers former teammates or just people who understand and lending a helping hand is how we fucking help each other on the outside.
1: Amen. And, and, yeah. and rebuild the tribe. Yeah. Whether you're, whether on you're, the outside, why not? Whether you're the team sergeant, the entrepreneur that's building those dudes around you that you know are going to help make you mission successful, or whether it's joining somebody's fight Yeah. and realizing that you fill holes that, that they have. And make and rounding that team out. Rebuild that tribe, man. That's what we know. That's what we live for. Like, why, why would we do it any different on the outside?
0: How has your experience been since you joined TIER? And what, what are you doing with TIER?
2: Well. <laughs> COVID. Uh, COVID, yeah. <laughs>
1: right? Um,
2: we stayed up that night until 3, talking. And Jason's like, come back tomorrow. I want to talk to you. So I got there around ten, and I just sat with him. He had a bunch of meetings set up with countries. You know what I mean? Yeah. That he's supplying armor for. One of the first meetings we sat in, um, the 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 customer was like, "I need I need a, a a piece of armor that stops one two three four five. I need it in a swimmer cut. I need it this time. I need it this." And Jason's taking notes. He's like, "Yep, I can do this. We'll have it shot by Friday. We'll have it in production next week." What? In the commercial world, I mean, no. you can move that fast. Yep. So I'm like, "Okay." He talks about innovator die. He he's innovator die, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the type of commander I want to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kept talking, and he invited me down. To Phoenix to see Tier Tactical. He's like, oh, it's the greatest thing. It's awesome. I'm like, okay, it's a factory. So I get down here and it's amazing. It's like JSOC headquarters. It's right. It's like, but he thought of everything. And as a commander, he takes care of his his team. If you go in there, I mean, he's thought of everything. The place is open, it's bright, it's painted white. It's it's inviting. You walk down the aisles where people are working and you, they look up at you and they smile. I mean, I was like, this is amazing. I want to be part of this. Chris is here, you know. He's built this culture to, for guys like us to thrive. I want to be part of this. So we talked and they, and they asked me to join the team. And they said, when do you think you can start? And I think I said Tuesday. And it was... <laughs> Friday. Yeah. How about Tuesday? <laughs> I, I just have to go grab another set of clothes. Um. And then from there, I mean, I've been shadowing Jason. I've been shadowing Chris. Just learning the business. Um, with COVID in place, it's kind of it kind of stopped us from traveling and, and going to meet clients and whatnot, or potential clients, um, or doing trade shows or whatnot. But we we're, we're, we ramped up our uh, social media. Um, so, we're doing that. Um, help design one of the ultimate range bag ever made known to man in this universe.
1: Yeah, got got to design and build his first piece of kit.
2: Yep. Awesome. So, I designed it. Um, and that's a tier uh, range bag, but you
0: did all the, the development on it using your experience. from. I used my experience, yeah. but not all. I mean,
2: we you worked on it. Chris and I worked on it together. Yeah. Jason and I, all three of us worked on it together. But... They kind of let me like take lead a little bit on it as, and they taught me as we, you know, hey, we sew it this way because of this and and whatnot. So it was a good learning experience, but I got a lot of input on the design because I'm like, no, this is how I want to do it. When I was an operator, this, you know what I mean. So that was really cool. Um, so th- and that's what I'm doing. I'm just learning. I'm in like this full receive mode, um, and it
1: feels good. So well, the goal, yeah, the goal was, and I think. Jason and I both – I stayed out of it, to be honest with you. In Vegas, he asked me what I thought, and I said, he's my brother, man. I love him. I go, Lee and I are very, very similar career paths. We ended up in two different places in the building, but we were both young guys that grew up in a special mission unit. I go, are, literally, there are so many parallels, and he's a brilliant, aggressive dude. And I said, but I'm not you – know, you do your thing. And he – was convinced in a very short period of time that Lee would be a value added to the team. And we discussed briefly, like, what would that be? And, um, you know, we've been looking for a, a, a BD guy, a business development guy, um, more with a swing on the international side. And it's because we've grown so much, you know, we're 340 some odd employees now. And, and in four, one, two, three, four locations, um, and three countries. Um, So we've grown a lot, and we do a lot with a very small amount of people. We absolutely needed a free-thinking, quick-learning asset to the team that could basically shadow and learn all aspects of the business and then just be cut away as a singleton and go, hey, man, go to country X, meet Y, understand their requirements, and carry the mail and and that's that's a hard billet to fill but when you have a guy that has done things at the highest level as an operator and then done things you know totally switch gears and put on a suit and tie and work in DC there aren't very many of those cats around Mm -hmm. like everybody thinks they can do it but in the international game you get one shot Mm -hmm. you go meet with somebody you have to develop rapport understand the requirement and convince them that you have a solution that meets those requirements sometimes in one day. Mm-hmm. And that's all you got. And finding those dudes is difficult. And, and we both felt like Lee was a guy that could do that.
0: Is that exciting for you? Because it's a new. it feels like a new mission set. It's. It feels exciting to me even hearing that because it's like, damn, okay, that's a big deal. It's still kind of in the industry space, right? Yeah. You're leveraging your expertise, but then – you do get to plan, prepare, and execute the mission and close close those deals. Is that something that is similar to what you were looking for?
2: Well, go to Nigeria, find out what the problem is, and then come up with three courses of action on how to fix it. <laughs> Sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, yes. Awesome. Not to mention you have a team to work with, bounce those ideas off of, you know, support team, you know. It's it's the perfect environment for me to step in, and he's already made the culture. I mean, Chris is there; he's 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 massaged it. Jason's got his massage. It's just timing couldn't have been more perfect.
1: No, yeah, it was absolutely. I mean, and we 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 have a Mike. You know this, but we have a we have a unique group of guys, and particularly in our in our outward facing tier world, you know our. Sales is a bad word, but our sales team, for lack of a better term, you know, we've got, you know, Chris Kreider, now Lee, Joey Mm Goodlow, you know, Danny Golden, who's a thirty-year retired Arizona DPS officer, was the number two cop in the state. Like we have a, we have this breadth of experience of guys that have done all this stuff, and all those dudes are a part of helping Jason make the right decisions on the development side. And then we have this amazing team, you know, CAD designers and sewers and people that that bring those ideas to to reality. So, it was a no-brainer. It was like, "Hey man, you can you can solve some of these bigger picture stuff, but we know you're going to be an addition to the development side because you got all these years, all this experience. We build armor. You were the first dude I knew that took around yeah. in a plate. Yeah. Like that's significant. It's a different perspective than someone that's never been shot has." So, yeah. the kit aspect
2: is amazing, right? All of us was always tweaking our kit. From when we were in Ranger Battalion where you couldn't tweak your kit and it had to be a certain way. And then you go to a unit where it's big boy rules and you get to – it's a living thing. You're always changing, always upgrading, you know. Um, So it's just natural there on the nylon side of the house. And then the armor side of the house, I've always had – I actually tried to go to CDD and work that piece when I was in the unit after my team time. And the CSM at the time said, "No, you're going to go be an S and T instructor <laughs> yeah. because I've always had this, you know. Hey, I'm body armor means something to me. I trust my equipment, you know.
0: Yeah, um, well, it has a true effect on the force as well. I mean, you're designing equipment that could save somebody's life, which
2: puts me day. back in touch with the end user. Yeah, you know, and 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 I'm not going to tell you how I did it, but I can. I can probably understand and 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 talk the same talk and understand what your problem is, so we can come back and and try to find a solution for it. And yeah. that's giving back, man.
1: And yeah. like that's yeah. I mean, we talked about this, but huge for us. It's like I said, if you're doing what you love and you're doing it for the right reasons, business is just successful. We do it because. We're giving back because we like to interact with the community. We like to solve their problems. Yeah, like it's healthy and healing for us. It has been for me, and I know it will be for him. Mm -hmm. Like, and I know he knows that already. Like, he's already seeing it in the hey, so and so needs this. Cool, man. We can do that. We're designing new a new carrier. (laughs) I think I wore it around for like three hours the other day. Yeah, (laughs) I get
2: excited about it. I mean, our shield and dolly system. I'm excited about that. It is a cool piece of kit. Ca- it's going to save lives. Yeah. And that's our job is to mitigate risk. and and at the team level, and if you're not trying to look at your TT, TTPs as living documents and they should be always upgraded with new technology, then you're looking at it wrong. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Well, this is how we do it. Well, why? Well, that's how we always done it. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? You're you're already behind the power curve. And we're providing equipment out there that you can you can develop new TTPs around that can save lives or at least mitigate. Mm -hmm. Right. I get excited about that.
0: Where do you see yourself in five years? What is that? Do you have a plan in five, a five year plan? I'm, I'm part
2: of cheer tactical for, I've well past five years. I see that easy.
0: Yeah. How has this benefited your personal life as far as finding a better place?
2: This gives me a lot of stability, right? It gives me a team. Um, It gives me Chris, it gives me Jason, it gives me a commander, right? To report to Mm -hmm. Jason is amazing. He's, he's, he's opened up his business and brought me in and, and and I sit in on all these meetings. I'm like, you can't pay for this type of education. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and I, uh, I, well, here you go. Um, a lot of people watch the, uh, the Fieldcraft Survival, the recovery for the black oh, yeah, Jeep yeah. Gladiator, yeah. which I floated down the river, yeah. which if you haven't watched it, it's for It's, it's a free. good video. It's a good video. <laughs> it's good training, right? Jason, Jason's like, Lee, you're part of our team now. You can't, you can't go do that. You can't jeopardize your life like that. You're mm-hmm. part of our team, mm-hmm. part of our family. How many bosses say that to you? That's awesome. You know? Yeah.
0: You you called Firebase Philcraft the Sinecure QRF. Totally. Throw right. it out. <laughs> but that's true. Like, that's but, love.
2: Yeah. Right? He's like, you're my kids know you. They're part of a family. Lee, i was just like, Phew. you know, I'm usually running off around by myself, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a new family, you have a new tribe. And I do. What's crazy is I've always wondered this about SMU selection processes um, where an SMU will select you because your individual skill sets and capability, right? We just had this conversation. Yeah. But, you know, you, you go to SFAS and it's all about team week, right? You get peered, you get shit on, and, and and they're assessing whether or not you're an integral part to a team or can be an integral part to a team. Yeah. How does that affect you? Or does it at all? Because it seems like if you take an individual and you've assessed them and you haven't assessed them for being a team player, and then you integrate them in a team and they're a bad team player, and then they leave the military, I almost feel like they're being set up for fucking failure.
2: Yeah. This is, this is a great topic. I love this topic. We just talked about this the other day. And I break it down into two categories. You have single man sport and team sports, mm. Right. Track and field is a good individual sport. You're part of a team, but when it's time to race, it's up to you. It's all on you. Wrestling, right? Yep. Um, you're part of a team, but when it's time to wrestle, it's it's just you. Um, and then you got football, hockey, these real team sports, volleyball, right? Yeah. So you got a bunch of individuals that know their job. They train hard for their position. Their position. And they come together, and they they work as a team. And then the game's over, and then they go train their individual part of it again. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You have to be able to do that. You have to know when to be an individual, go to Nigeria by yourself, or come together as a team and know your job. If I'm a defensive end, I'm a defensive end. I'm not gonna try to be a linebacker. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna try to be the quarterback and a wide receiver at the same time. Know your place and own it and be the best at it, know the basics and do it. It's being able to be an individual and switch those gears and be a team player. Some guys can do it. Some guys can't, mm-hmm. you know. It's insane. I, I just that's
0: It gets down to, like, the root of some of the things that people assess for. And I always wonder that. I always wondered, like, what if they did a team event in West Virginia? What if they assessed and just were taught, we could pick out the guy who maybe wasn't, he was an introvert, and he hated communicating with other people because you're sending that guy to name X country in the middle of Africa to talk to an ambassador or potentially integrate with a team, and he can't do it. I don't know. I've always thought about that and the selection processes because SFAS always changes because it changes based off of the next officer OER bullet that they want to get you know, on their OER to, to make change, to make difference. But West Virginia has never changed. It's been the same since Eric Haney talked about it or Bef- Beckwith talked about it in the original book.
2: I love it. Yeah. it you, everyone gets the same shake. You know, mm-hmm. There's no good old boy system. There's not. No, nope. And it's probably one of the best kept secrets in special ops.
0: Yeah, absolutely is. It was a big suck fest.
1: It's pre-vetting. I had a I great think, time. The yeah. difference between West Virginia and then the difference between selection and then the training course is night and day. Yeah. you you very, very rapidly go to now you're a team.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: You've achieved... Day
0: one, you're you're assimilated in a team.
1: We have vetted your competencies as an individual and your drive and motivation. That's true, yeah, absolutely. You you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely right. But now you're going to function. Lee and I actually have a good example. We went and we were talking the other day. I don't know if they do this to everybody or whatever, but we went through the course for, what, three quarters of it? With certain teams, mm-hmm. and you get used to the guys next to you, and you start and learn to function really well, and strengths and weaknesses that work together, and you, you, it works great, like it does in any environment. And then we were three quarters of the way through, and they went and threw a grenade in the room and blew all the teams up. And the next thing you know, Lee and I are on the same team. Oh, sure. I'm with a completely different set of guys. Yeah. As, a, as a both in both our cases. Yeah. Now he's he's got this functioning environment, and now he gets stuck with me, the other young dude in the class. (laughs) And now you got to start all over, and you're way deep in TTPs and advanced stuff, and you got to deal with that. Mm, How does that work on both levels? So I, you know, I think it's that I, I think in terms of, but it
2: goes back to what I was just saying about individual skills, and then no. Knowing the position, you if you're number two man, you're a good t- number two man. Mm-hmm. If you're number one man, you're number one man. And, and we kind of plug and play. And and there's some you know little little things and reading off people and whatnot. But but being able to come together and do that and do it well. I also yeah.
1: think it's unique because it's the army, and I've said this for years. People always ask me what's the biggest difference between special operations units and the services, and I always respond with the same thing: the army breeds leaders. You. You you learn how to be a leader in whatever your profession is in the service before you're allowed to get to that point. Yeah, and that is and uh, that might upset some people, and I'm not trying to do that. But you know, and I said that about the 18 X-ray program when they started that back up again. you, You know, you basically took the army and you made it like the navy. You allowed people to assess and train as an 18 or 19 year old kid, and you get what you get. Yeah. When you do that, um, because you take out those years of learning how to be a leader in a shitty environment, mm-hmm. good leaders, bad leaders, good situation, bad situation, stuff you like doing, stuff you hated doing, those are all experiences that are irreplaceable in developing you as an individual and as a leader that are critical to your success in, in an organization like that.
0: Yeah, one hundred that's 100% spot on. That's exactly right. Because you're also, when you grow up in combat arms... You have an understanding of small unit tactics and combat arms, period. And then you integrate to a special operations unit and you have all that myriad of experience as opposed to just coming out of a pipeline and expected with no experience, just training to do what you do. Last question. Do you have any regrets?
2: I don't. Hmm. I don't. I spent 20 years and 30 days in the service. There's some really good times. There's some really bad times. But I don't regret anything.
0: Hmm. That's a good way in end the podcast. Um Lee, Chris, I mean, you guys are my heroes, man. Growing up in the special operations and looking across the hall and seeing you guys operate, it, it makes me emotional because um like I don't have many heroes in the fucking world. I I don't look up to anybody. The only person I really look up to is my mom. But you two guys have been uh, heroes of mine. I mean, fuck, me and Chris's podcast, I literally looked him in the face and was like, you're that picture that I when I was in G, like I looked at that picture in the spine and went, holy fuck, who's that badass, dude? Oh, that's
1: Chris. You haven't asked enough people about me to get it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just, it
0: it, it is an honor and um, privilege of mine even after the fact, after it's all said and done to even still be able to communicate to you guys and be in the same room and hear your stories and hear your past and your journeys. And, uh, I'm, I'm so proud of you guys and I love you guys. And I'm, I'm, uh, just looking forward to continue build relationships, work with you guys at tier and, and do good shit, man, like we should be doing. So
2: thanks for having us, Mike. And I'd like to just to everyone out there in the community, just have, have compassion for each other. I'm sure there'll be blowback for this podcast, some of the stuff we said and whatnot. It's okay. Um, I'll have compassion for you. Yeah, man. You know?
1: You're just not there yet. It's cool. It's fine. Yeah. But it, it, absolutely. Great point, man. Mike, keep doing what you're doing, brother. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. There, yeah. I, I wanted
2: to do this podcast once I heard your two podcasts. And I knew it was going to take me some time. Yeah. And then the other day, when you got that phone call, I sent you that tax that was ready. Yeah, that made my day. Man. So thanks.
0: Yeah, but well, thank you, guys.